It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey everybody, Patrick Connor here and welcome to the Knuckles and Gloves podcast. It's boxing history time, so I'm here with my buddy Eris Pina, CompuBox operator and fellow fight history file. Eris, what's up, man? How are you? Everything's good, my friend. How are you? Doing all right, dude. You know, I'm always hyped to I'm always hyped to do the history shows, bro, and we got a good I mean, it admittedly, it is a very poignant, sad, kind of a cautionary tale type of subject. But nonetheless, a good in terms of being interesting subject and and something that's very, you know, encompasses a lot of stuff that fight fans are regularly talking about, even to this day, uh, even to like this week. So in any case, uh, yeah, the Quarry family, the Quarry brothers specifically, Jerry Quarry and Mike Quarry, very specifically. It's It's a crazy, crazy tale. It's a very... You know, typical boxing tale, unfortunately, but that's what we're here to talk about today, man. You know, to be honest, bro, um, I'm surprised it's actually taken us this long to do a to do a feature on them, considering that's true. what we've been doing. I don't, you know, it's I don't know. It's one of those they, they the quarries are one of those of one of those type of families, or just specifically Jerry and Mike, like they're saying that they're talked about enough that it's almost forgotten that like you know we've mentioned them on the shows and stuff like that. But I, mean, I don't know. I've just almost passed my mind to actually do a feature on it, but um i've been watching some jerry quarry footage this past week also mike quarry um doing some more research just in general and realized you know we actually haven't really done a deep dive on them yet and better time than ever you know what i mean yeah and and they had very uh eventful lives and careers i mean sad endings for both of them unfortunately jerry and mike um but nonetheless it's uh it's a like i said a cautionary tale in in a lot of ways um and i think a a way to demonstrate that while we talk about the fact that a lot of things in boxing have not changed and that ultimately boxing still is the same kind of thing now that it was then there are some things that have changed and many of them for the better overall um and so you know we'll we'll talk about some of that kind of stuff today but <clears throat> like we were saying before we started recording, Jerry Quarry, you know, Irish Jerry Quarry, Bellflower Bomber, depending on, you know, however you're going to, however you're going to nickname the guy, even to this day, very popular whenever there's social media stuff about Jerry Quarry or whatever, there's a discussion about fighters who never won titles, a discussion about, you know, the heavyweights from other eras who were kind of like, normal in their era but would kick ass now that type of shit jerry quarry always always figures big into those conversations dude quarry remains one of the most popular fighters just in general if you go to the boxing hall of fame i can't tell you over the years how many countless people have come up to me massive jerry quarry fans and they're like so do you think jerry quarry belongs in the hall of fame put you on the spot right away and 
usually I'll tell I'll tell them straight up. I you know I wouldn't make him a Hall of Famer. It doesn't mean I don't love him. I'm a massive Jerry Corey fan. You know, a tragic figure and all, but just if you watch his fights, you can't help but be a fan of him. You know what I mean? He had a great personality too before everything unfolded later on in his life. If you listen to his earlier interviews, how articulate he really was, extremely smart, had a very high IQ, could sing, did great in person, just all around good guy. And that doesn't mean, you know, I, it's not wrong that I wouldn't put him in the Hall of Fame. I wouldn't put Mickey Ward in the Hall of Fame. You know what I mean? Everybody loves him too. But like, Corey just holds this this image about himself because he was, you know, a tough, you got to say, a you know, white guy in the toughest era in heavyweight history. And he held his own with most of them. And he fought toe-to-toe with the absolute best and always showed that he was a warrior in the ring. Like, you know, he just fondly remembered. Either you're from that era or you learned about him afterwards because your parents talked about him as fight fans or whatever. General, general, you know, generally, Jerry Corey is always held in high favor and high regard for everybody. He, one of the biggest reasons why he and some other fighters that are often recommended for the Hall of Fame, uh, sometimes, in our opinion, incorrectly, is that they fought a who's who of fighters from their era. And in Jerry Quarry's specific, you know, him specifically as an example, uh, in his case, he fought the who's who of like an era and a half or so. And it was an extremely good era and a half, if not the best, you know, one of the best, maybe the second best. And so when you're able to hang with everybody from that era, you know, pretty much nobody embarrassed him you know nobody was just like beating the ever-loving crap out of him and treating him like trash uh obviously there were fighters getting whooped up he was still hanging in there and making yeah there were fighters who outclassed him obviously but they wasn't like they just discarded him like he was nothing uh he was always a formidable opponent and when you're able to hang in there with that many good fighters it says a lot about you and so that's a big reason why people are you know yeah, i need him in the hall of fame and want him in the hall of fame totally. and i get it you know and his you, resume actually would win losses with the with the um with the era you just mentioned it holds very highly with a lot of people who are in the hall of fame but it's the only reason why they're ahead you know more modern and champion yada 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 but like so his resume does hold up. I just, you know, have different standards. Well, everybody, I guarantee you there are a lot of people who vote for the Hall of Fame that would say, hey, I would definitely vote for Jerry Quarry. Quick question. Actually, I didn't even think about this till right now. Was Jerry Quarry in the Rings Hall of Fame before they did International Boxing Hall of Fame? To be honest, I'm not actually sure. I never thought hmm. about that. Because it's like, as you were talking about that, that, I almost... I almost like, well, I'll, I'll go off while you look on that. But yeah. as you were talking about that, actually, I thought about that because I was like, you know, now there's been enough time between his you know actual career and the start of the International Boxing Hall of Fame in 1990, you know, because he was still technically active at that time, but obviously as a, you know, absolutely shot. But there was, uh, you know, quite a bit of time between his actual career and the start of the National Boxing Hall of Fame, whereas now some more recent fighters, like hmm, yeah. some more recent fighters who are kind of like on his level or like you said, around his level or wins or losses or whatever kind of comparable have have been inducted into the International Boxing Hall of Fame. I mean, it's kind of a seems like a recency bias or whatever, but in any case, um, no recency bias. You know, they want popularity. They want people to go there. So they got to switch things up and make it seems that way, you know, and, and there's no, no accusations, no, you know, no soreness here. I get it, but still it it does kind of make you think. And anyhow, anyhow, like when it comes to Jerry Quarry, dude, like we got to go back to the beginning. 
got to go back to where this all began and why this story winds up being cautionary and winds up being somewhat of a typical story in boxing or a stereotypical story is that it all starts with the patriarch of this family, Jack Quarry, the father of these several sons, these Quarry, Irish Quarry sons. He's a dude who it's almost like he's an unreliable narrator in his own story. Like you don't know whether to trust what he's saying based on the things you know about him later on that he did. And so when, uh, according to him, according to Jack Quarry, his name was James, but he went by Jack. Uh, he was from Texas and did some kind of, I want to say sharecropping or some other kind of like, you know, um, with all due respect, kind of lower level in terms of ec economic, socioeconomic rung farming. And that he had, according to him, <clears throat> started riding the rails and became a hobo and was basically, you know, a rail riding hobo tough guy who lived in this shadowy world, as he told it, where people were getting knifed here and killed there and strangled here and fucking pitched off the fucking train here and all sorts of shit. I mean, you know, the guy had definitely had the gift of Irish, <clears throat> excuse me, Apparently, I got the gift of Irish fucked up throat. Uh, he had the gift of Irish storytelling, for sure. Listen to this one. He said, when I was 14, he told People Magazine, I chopped cotton for $1 a day in Roswell, New Mexico. You can go out on Sunday and fight three rounds for $3. That was three days work. <laughs> and and who's going to double check anything? Who's going to fact check shit? Who's going to call Especially up? Especially from that era, because he comes from an era when people were like, like you said, the workers and going from one place. Yeah, where's to your references, Jack? Yeah. I'm going to need some references, bro. Just traveling around. You can't really fact check a gold man because that was such a wild west era. You know what I mean? And and there are other fighters too. Some other like classic era fighters, Stanley Ketchell probably being the most prominent who was a rail rider or rode the rails as they say. Jack, De actually Jack Dempsey's more famous. He probably more famous for being a, a rail riding hobo. Well, yeah, everybody, you know, like most Dempsey historians will always call him a hobo in the early days. But Ketchell also had that monkeyer too. Yeah, well, and Ketchell would have been before Dempsey, but regardless, yes. we're getting lost in our own fucking, you know, <laughs> But yeah, but sounding like historical fantasies here. here. But this is the yeah. thing, like you said, he was just flexing around. He got married at a very young age as well, and pretty soon, you know, just ragtagging with his kids. All he knew, what he said, was just fighting and just kind of find work where he could. There was no stability in the Corey family, clearly. Right, and you can well, and here's the thing, dude, is that even if those stories aren't true, whether they're true or not is like doesn't even matter. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Because it's like. <laughs> If they're true, then the guy went through some shit and he's probably a little because he fucking went through some shit. And if it's not true, he's a little because he's making up this fucking story and telling people. So either way, you know, the bottom line is that these quarry kids are in trouble, bro. These quarry kids are growing up in, in an environment where either a dude came from a real fucking weird and rough life or is a straight up sociopath. And, and I mean, some of the borders on both is probably, you know, just kind of in between right there. The shit that happens later, it's really, who knows? You know what I'm saying? Well, so, um, well, yeah, you know, like it, that's kind of sets the stage for the fighting and the violence and like this life into fighting. And according to him, he had done some sort of amateur fighting or some sort of, you know, uh, 
it, like I said, it's really difficult to know what's what's the truth. But according to him, that's how this all started. This life, rough life of violence and fighting. That was the thing, man. He said that he has some kind of ailment that, you know, didn't allow him to turn pro, but that's all he did on his downtime. He fought everywhere. He just wanted to be a boxer. He had a man to show how much of a, like, a roughneck he was. He had really, really crude and a really, really crude tattoo across his knuckles. Hard luck. All right. And as we were talking before the show started, man, back then, dudes, most people didn't get tattoos at all. All right. Unless you were like in the military or you did something or another. Most guys didn't get tattoos. All right. The fact that Jack Quarry was going around, probably did it himself or had one of his little hobo buddies out there just scrabbled out on his knuckles because it was there. You'll find photos of it. It's as bad as you think it could look. And this is the type of person we're talking about. So all he wanted to do, he had nothing going on in his life. But when he had his kids, all he could do, the only thing he said he knew how to teach them was boxing. That was it. He knew nothing else. All he knew how to do was work in the fields or whatever he could find work, and he knew fighting. So when he had Jerry, when he had um, the older brother, the oldest brother, James, who didn't become a fighter, and then eventually Mike, that's what he was going to teach them. They're all going to be fighters whether they liked it or not. Yeah, there was a, a, a <clears throat> excuse me, a bunch of like, saying sayings and stuff like that that jack would say you know uh there there's no quit in a quarry you know if you're a quarry you don't that quit was the main one. that was the main one there's no quit in a quarry because as we'll discuss later on the show that became the main tagline for basically their you know their complete downfall up until the very end almost all of these kind of things that he would say uh you know there were some kind of rare moments actually and we'll get to this in a minute but there were some rare moments where he would say things that were not callous or kind of crazy sounding, but usually they were hyper-masculine, that kind of, the the stuff that you see in the gyms. I mean, frankly, um, you know, you can never quit. Got to go out on your shield. You know, you're going to fucking die, you know, regardless of your mental health or whatever the fuck's going on in your life, dude, you better go out there and kill yourself or something. And it's, that's, that's the kind of uh, environment that he was raising these boys in. And so Jerry, well, you brought up James and uh, Jimmy Quarry, the eldest, the, brother. the eldest brother, was himself an amateur fighter and by most accounts, a pretty good amateur fighter. He was like about a year or so older than Jerry, um, but he never wound up turning pro. However, he, uh, according to him, was the only person to ever give Jerry a 10 count. We'll get to their other shenanigans later, too. But he said in the amateurs, he and Jerry fought and that he knocked Jerry clean out and he was the only person to ever do so. Um, but I mean, getting. There's the thing, too, to add to him. I don't. Uh, one more thing about uh, the dad, Jack Quarry, to add to his perspective about how funky this family could be. There was another thing, you don't know if it's true or not, but this was relayed by many people in the family. Jack denied it, but the other kids didn't. Um, in a KO magazine article, and I want to say around 95, 96 when this was like when news, when Corey's condition really started coming out. Cause there was like, like a lot of news reels. Reggie and, Dunlap. Are you listening? Yeah. <laughs> um, it was when Corey, you know what it was? Corey got inducted into the West coast boxing hall of fame, I think, or the world boxing hall of fame, whatever it was like. So he got inducted over there and that's when there was like a lot of news stories and people visiting to find out because they, you know, that's when it really came out that, Hey, he's in really bad shape plus they needed money you know what i mean Corey was only getting a stipend of a few uh, like 600 something bucks a month whatever it is but anyways um they did ko magazine did a whole story on the entire family the tragedy of the Corey family from beginning to the end 
all this stuff, right? And one of the stories they told about in the beginning of it, and I remember reading this as a kid and I was like, holy shit, is James Corey, um, like you said, an amateur fighter, but a person who kind of stayed away from, you know, fighting if he didn't have to, I guess got into a confrontation with someone at school or wherever it was and walked away from the fight. And as he got home and then his dad found out about it, Jack Quarry apparently, allegedly, um, had James stripped down and then even forced him to wear his daughter, his sister's diapers and put on a bassinet or something and then have a baby bottle and walk around the family, sucking the bottle and repeating over and over, I'm not a quarry, I'm a quitter. I'm not a quarry, I'm a quitter. That's what, you know, allegedly happened. I. I tend to believe it probably did. It seems like something Jack Corey probably would have been up to if he was, you know, to teach them a lesson. But, um, and that would be something, that's pretty, that's a pretty crazy story just to come up with you on your own. You know what I mean? So anyways, he said that. And then uh, James Corey said that Jerry, who was young, walked up to him and told him afterwards, that's something I'll never, that'll never happen to me. But that just gives you a perspective of how these kids were raised, what was going on in their life and basically how their brains were warped and shaped early on. Well, and and I guess that's fairly prescient on Jerry's part because he wasn't lying, Absolutely. and it, and that also I think sets a lot of the stage for the motivation that's behind a lot of the of uh, what Jerry did as a fighter and as a person. Totally. Um, totally. and I mean, <clears throat> this is our own kind of like psychoanalysis here. Neither of us are psychologists, psychiatrists, fucking any of that, but. Regardless, I mean, I think that we've watched enough boxing, read about enough boxing, heard from enough boxers that we kind of have a decent grasp about this kind of shit. But point is, you know, uh, we called out or at least I called out what I felt was a very clear cut case of abuse when we talked about the Fletcher family and what Lucille Fletcher used to do to uh, specifically Frank, but also her other kids. And, you know, what we're talking about here with Jack Quarry, dude, there's no question that this is abuse. This is fucking nasty and ridiculous. Um, and also on top of that, to kind of piggyback off of that type of shit, um, you know, Jerry, when he was young, he went in another, there was another article I was reading in Sports Illustrated a little bit ago about he just, he literally details this like string of injuries that his dad made him fight through uh, when he was young. And some of them, as he was an amateur, he said one of his first losses when he was an amateur happened because it was like, I think he had said nine days after he'd broken his ankle, his dad made him fight because he had broken, broken his ankle, you know, and I think he had said that he'd broken his ankle sliding into second base or something like that. And his dad still made him fight. And I don't know what the nature of this was, if it was some kind of smoker where they were getting paid or what. Mm -hmm. But according to Jerry, his dad made him fight because he said they needed the money. So I, I, like I said, I don't know what was happening here. If it was on the hush, under the table, black market, I don't know. I don't know. Point is that it was uh, really ridiculous. And that there was, like I said, another a string of injuries. Um, and also on top of that, when he was a young teenager, he got nephritis which is a bad kidney infection, kidney issue that can lay you up and that it was severe enough that he, they told him that he might um, <clears throat> at some point, he might actually like not be able to walk, not be able to like, might be incontinent, et cetera. Somehow he got through it and he basically this, this kind of string of things, his brother getting 
absolutely embarrassed and his dad being a constant fucking looming threat in his life uh these injuries and ailments when he was a a young kid it's almost like they made him frightened absolutely scared to death of not being tough not looking tough not seeming tough and not being a tough guy and that's like that is the theme with jerry quarry's life is that he goes ab- like above and beyond overboard over the top to show how tough he is to the point where he fucks himself up and shortens his own life over it. Totally. And they really, you'll see that more and more as we talk about his career, but early on, you know, to talk about it, man, as he, when Jerry Corey was the one that really took up boxing that Jack Corey was ready to invest everything in because Jerry embodied everything Jack wanted to be. He was like, I'm going to live vicariously through Jerry. Jerry was strong as hell. He was athletic as hell. He had a crack in the left hook. And he was a very, very talented amateur, you know, won the, uh, won the national golden gloves, scored all of his wins by knockout. Um, I think only had like 13 losses or so as an amateur. So he was, you know, really with a lot of promise as he turned pro. Not only that, Jack Corey, who admittedly said he knew nothing about the pro game. He just kind of, you know, was a scrapper and a fighter who liked boxing. He brought on a, um, a guy who was known as Mr. Boxing, Mr. Amateur Boxing, uh, Johnny Flores, who, um, was a very, very well-known um, boxing and aficionado and trainer and manager on the West Coast scene in the LA area. So good for Jerry right there, all right? Jerry already has strong backing with a, with a guy who knows what he's doing, who can help him maneuver him. And then also his dad's never going to go anywhere, but at least he got someone that would experience to help maneuver their career. So right away, Jerry becomes a commodity on the West Coast. You know what I mean? Builds up a string of wins, a couple of hiccups along the way. Like he has a draw with a fighter by the name of Tony Alonji, who was a tough contender back then. And but Jerry Corey, the Express is still going strong. His first loss in 1966 is against a guy by the name of Eddie Machen, who we've discussed on the show before. Eddie Machen, a charter member of the, you know, uh, custom auto club of guys that can never, ever fight Floyd Patterson. You know, that lost generation of heavyweights from the 50s and 60s. But Machen in 66 was past it, obviously. But he was still a very, very wily veteran, still very highly skilled and as young and you know, tough as Corey was, Machen had enough savvy in him that he was able to school him and, you know, give him a pretty comprehensive decision. And um, the thing about that, though, is interesting is that Corey took that loss in stride because we've talked about this before, bro. You know, people today talk so much about, oh, man, you suffered an O, the guy took an L, oh, he lost his O, lost his O. Back in the 60s, if you suffered a loss for the first time, that wasn't written off in your career. You know what I mean? That's just a bump in the load load bump in the road <laughs> a learning experience <laughs> I'm, um, major pause on that bro yeah yeah seriously so <laughs> this is the bump in the road a learning experience and that's what it is you're fighting a guy like you know eddie machin and you lose to him I, that's not the worst thing that happened to you yeah and and even if you go to the wikipedia page for the fight on box rec it says there's a real good quote from jerry quarry down at the very bottom where he says now the pressure's off now i can really start learning and, yeah <clears throat> That was something that was actually a consistent theme for Jerry Corey throughout his career and life, as long as he could manage it. He was he was extremely candid, a very quiet, uh, funny, fairly reserved, yep. but um, you know, articulate. Somebody who was he he was not gregarious, not super talkative. Yeah but he was able to articulate what he was feeling 
very well. You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, not, a, not everybody can do that. Not everybody can kind of put their feelings into words and especially fighters because fighters and from that family were, are, were and are discouraged from doing that. And so uh, nonetheless, he was, you know, I think in his dad's presence, he was probably a lot quieter and tried to act a lot tougher. But generally speaking, he was a very, you know, he's a very just candid, open guy. And uh, you you kind of see that throughout his career, like I said, as long as he could manage it. And after that loss to Machen, it was like, you know, and he showed it too because he went on a nice uh, unbeaten streak for a while. That and he became and he was wildly popular at that point too. Yep, uh, right around this time, right around that same time that he lost to Eddie Machen, uh, they did an interview with. Nat Fleischer that actually went into Sports Illustrated and he was talking about a bunch of the young heavyweights that have been coming up because it was a you know it was it was not a lot of people were willing to say it especially a lot of like the white media because well for obvious reasons but after Muhammad Ali really exploded like dude interest in boxing exploded there were we've talked about this you know I think you've if if you as the you the listener or what a viewer have followed the podcast enough that we've kind of talked about a lot of different eras. You can see that there's a real ebb and flow as far as the interest in boxing, et cetera, et cetera. When TV came along, there was a massive interest in boxing and it was on, you know, like several nights a week, sometimes live and there weren't very many channels. So obviously a lot of people were watching it, blah, blah, blah. Toward the end of the fifties, however, it started to wane and a lot of people started going like, Jesus, dude, is TV killing boxing? I think TV, TV killed boxing. Oh my God. You know, people were like panicking for real. And there was a big, uh, you know, a lot of people didn't didn't like Sonny Liston, didn't think he was interesting, you know, and the, so the heavyweights go, so goes boxing, as they say, blah, blah, blah. And then when Muhammad Ali comes along in the early and, and mid-60s, it was a massive injection into the arm of boxing as far as interest and as far as, you know, people actually tuning in. And when that happened... It, it sparked interest also with other heavyweights and with other people coming up and they thought they had a chance, et cetera, et cetera. And so <clears throat> this is right around the same time that Jerry Quarry's coming along, that there's this massive interest in boxing. Back to what I was saying, Nat Fleischer's asked about this young crop of heavyweights. Oh my gosh, it's so exciting. Nat, what do you, you know, who do you like? Blah, blah, blah. One of the first guys he names is Jerry Quarry. And he says, you will not believe this is back you know, right around this time in the mid to late 60s, he says, you will not believe how much mail I get about Jerry Quarry. And this is back when they're getting, you know, reader mail and shit like that all the time. It probably doesn't happen quite the same way. But anyway, yeah, Nat Fleischer, editor of The Ring, says he's getting tons of mail about Jerry Quarry, which is, you know, you believe it. Uh, L.A. right around this time was really also blowing up in the, you know, on the, the West Coast boxing scene. And so there he was at the Olympic Auditorium, you know, at the Civic Auditorium in San Francisco, all along the West Coast, fighting up and down the West Coast and becoming an attraction. You know, Corey at that point, um, good looking guy, like you said, very articulate, fun, you know, a jokester, made for good tele, you know, just made for good camera. And he was like a heartthrob, you know what I mean? Because he was a young guy, he turned pro. I think he still think he was like in his late teens when he turned pro. So he's in his very early 20s now, in his early 20s now in his career. He has a fun style. He's a great boxer at this point. He's gaining experience and he's beating good fighters now because after he lost to Machen, 
he started like up in his competition and um yeah he's become a major commodity a major attraction and women love him it's probably you know when you think about we probably could have mentioned him in the whole heartthrob thing back when he did that episode that's true i thought about that later as i was researching yeah. for this i was totally. like dang we missed that but Corey, you know he he had you know he had all the little teeny boppers back then swarming and swooning over him as much as they love the beatles and the doors and any other you know major music artist or whoever that was popping back then jerry Corey was getting the same type of attention in boxing baby <laughs> you know so and with that cat with that happening means big big attraction means big money so there was a lot of fighters including guys that i'm about to bring up right now that um wanted to fight him because they knew they were going to get you know money out of it guys like Sonny Liston, who um, after one of his last fights, after he stops Henry Clark, um, uh, Howard Cosell is interviewing him. He was like, oh, Sonny, what do you want to do next? He was like, well, you're supposed to go to California to fight this boy that, you know, you're supposed to mention fight him back, all of that. And we're going to see if we can do it. He was like, oh, Billy Joyner. He's like, no, no, not Billy Joyner. Um, Jerry Corey is his name. Oh, you're going to fight? Yeah, yeah, Jerry Corey. So we're going to see if he can go over there and they're going to take the fight with us. But that fight, unfortunately, never materialized. Instead, um, Liston's victim, former two-time heavyweight champion, Floyd Patterson, who was on the comeback trail himself and extremely popular, took on the challenge of Jerry Quarry. And they ended up meeting in LA. And that, my friend, was a hell of a fight. I mean, dude, it, it's, it, wind up, it winds up being that Floyd Patterson just can't keep himself off the deck, dude. Bless him. Bless him. Bless the guy. You know, it made for some really uh, you fun know, I fights. I mean, bless them the fact that it's 1967. He's going toe-to-toe with Jerry Quarry, and he's still a top contender for a title. Like, I find that fucking awesome for him. And, you know, and, I don't... I, and, yeah, I just, and he would have been like a like a top flight like light heavyweight today you know like maybe maybe a cruiserweight yeah yeah maybe like a like a medium-sized cruiserweight or something like that but i mean you know the guy was <laughs> he was so fallible and so entertaining um you know just hit the deck against pretty much everybody but jerry quarry <clears throat> i'll i'll just say when we talk about like what we were talking about earlier and talking about people bringing up Jerry Quarry as somebody who would you know do great in this era or something like that, I don't necessarily disagree per se. But uh, when it comes to in the ring, when it comes to style wise, Jerry Quarry had a lot of shortcomings. Jerry Quarry had a lot of holes in his game. Uh, you know, at his best, he moved his head pretty well but not quite enough and he relied more on a like a bruising physical style with a big left hook kind of think of basically joe frazier with less head movement you know joe frazier did a lot of the kind of bobbing and up and down type of stuff because that's that's really the only thing that got joe frazier through uh you know style wise obviously he had far more intangibles but style wise that's a lot of what got joe frazier past you know like he had slow feet he did not have super great footwork not very fast hands etc but he moved his head well and he was able to kind of maneuver himself into landing his hook and whatnot jerry Corey though was a little bit more kind of like lay his head on your chest and just kind of like go to work type of fighter um and so because of that that also made for some entertaining fights but i think that jerry Corey would find himself in trouble against a lot of heavyweights who pretty much were just well-schooled. You know what I mean? Um, 
and and I think that also even uh, Floyd Patterson was if even a uh, nineteen sixty seven version of Floyd Patterson, who was not done, you know, who was definitely not done as a fighter. Obviously, Clearly. long in the tooth, but not done, um, because if we talked about Floyd Patterson's career he went on after this to do to do some pretty good work actually and actually we talked about it on a different show we had a really nice comeback um like an underrated comeback but point being Floyd Patterson also showed that Jerry Quarry could be outmaneuvered could be outboxed and Eddie Machen showed that too but an older Floyd Patterson showed it and obviously Jerry Quarry had a lot to learn at this time at this point it it was you know, early on, I think Patterson was actually dubbed the favorite in their in their fight, just you know, on sentimental and you know everything else. But like early on, like you said, Patterson always got decked early by everybody. Even Tom McNeely somehow decked him. And I mean, think about that. Peter McNeely's dad dropped Floyd Patterson. But didn't, um, and didn't he hit the deck like in the first round? I want to say against Rademacher, Pete Rademacher. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Pete Rademacher dropped him to either the first or second round. Yep. Totally. Imagine that, dude. Not only you get a you get the shot at the heavyweight title in your pro debut, but you actually drop the champ. Like I'd be like, holy shit. You know. Yeah, man. I, you know, Johansson, I think, dropped him in all of their fights. Um and you, you name it, yeah. Patterson just God bless him. I mean, he you usually know. got up. I'll give him that. He always but... got up, usually, unless you were Sonny Liston or you know, <laughs> yeah, the first yeah, basically. He got up, but... And he got up in this one too. Patterson got dropped twice early on, like twice in the second round, like he usually did. Um, some people that thought Patterson was already finished and Corey was going to dust him up were all like, all right, you know, this is anticlimactic. But Patterson came back, like you said. He they ought to just Corey give back. Howard Cosell like a fucking sound bite, dude. And down goes Patterson because they yep. could just use it whenever, you know? Exactly, exactly. So, but then Patterson came back, man. He roared back, like you said. He got in Corey, beat him up. They roughed him up. Like he had Corey reeling, bloodied at the end. They rumbled toe to toe. Corey suffered a knockdown later on in the fight. Like it was a great brawl. And at the end of it, a lot of people thought Patterson probably edged it. But, you know, it being in California, Corey being really popular, it was a legitimately close fight. It ends up being a draw. Um, Patterson, the reason why everybody loves him is because he was such a gentleman. And after the fight, he even said so as much. He was like, look, we gave them a good show. Hopefully we can do it again type deal. Like, you know, if that's what they deem it. It is a draw. It is what it is. And most people wouldn't take that. Oh, man, we got robbed. Oh, bullshit. Nah, they took it in stride. Anyways, their futures were going to collide soon enough because what we're getting to next is this is the late 60s now, right? 1967, 1968. What happens around that time, Pat? Muhammad Ali is forced to give up his belts. You know, it's just general uh, national social unrest. The civil rights movement is absolutely at its height, at its mm -hmm. peak. Um, you know, not to get into too much other stuff, but there's been civil rights leaders killed around this time. There's a lot going on. Muhammad it's Ali. Very, very heavy. You got Medgar Evers, Martin Luther King, you know, a lot happening. Indeed. Yeah, it was, it, there was really, a lot, yeah. lot going on right around this time. And Muhammad Ali found himself right in the thick of it by refusing to be drafted to be sent to Vietnam. There was a whole bunch of political maneuvering from the U.S. Army and, you know, a bunch of a bunch of uh, like, a, I think, a handful of U.S. senators who were just out and to get to get the fucking guy. And they pulled his license to fight Muhammad Ali's license to fight, which meant that uh the disgusting parasitic alphabet organizations 
quicker than you could say lickety fucking split was like we need to hold some tournaments maybe we, we need to do something and we need to get some some fighters in here to hold these belts and get some sanctioning oh. fees blah 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 so no it's the, the good old days man there was only one champion in every division nah this this caused quite a few headaches for everyone involved Right. And on top of that, and well, I mean, do we get to do an entire show about just the WBA tournament alone? Yes. Because there was a shitload of reshuffling. They had a, the initial proposed names for the WBA tournament. And there was like two that remained in the actual tournament because the rest were like either we ain't touching that WBA shit or, you know, we're doing something else. That is ridiculous. Like Joe Frazier was like, I'm not yeah. touching that shit. Get the fuck out of here. And <clears throat> I mean, for a handful of reasons, but point being, Muhammad Ali, license yanked, no longer champion, excommunicated from the school of boxing, and WBA in particular was like, we need a tournament to find a new champion. And among these people in this tournament, Jerry motherfucking Corey, bro. And, you know, like I said, it was kind of a rotating group of characters here, but yeah, very historic. That they ended up with. Yeah, no, it was. It actually was. It was because there was Corey. Um, correct me if I'm wrong on these other ones. I mean, if I'm missing anybody, you got Oscar Bonavina, Carl Mildenberger, um, Thad Spencer, former WBA champ, um, Ernie Terrell, Jimmy Ellis, Corey, Patterson, and Leo Martin. Leo Martin. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, probably oh. Leotis Martin probably being like the least recognizable to most people, yeah, uh, but well, was a solid contender around this time. Totally. So yeah, and, he, he. I belonged. mean, those are like for the sixth for the late sixties. That's a you know that's a pretty good crop of talent right there for who is you know who you can get for a tournament. Yeah, it, no, it really was. Um, and actually, you know, the the fights wound up overall being pretty good, or at the very least, interesting. Um, you know, the, the Bonavena Mildenberger fight was an absolute fiasco. You should definitely read about that shit. And there's a really good sports, uh, a sports illustrated article called, I think it was called bean can bout in okay. Frankfurt. I, I think was the title of the article. And the reason why was because, uh, nobody could find a bell and they literally used a, a bean can yeah, for the yeah, bell. Yeah. And so they literally, they, it's that bean can bell. Kind of like what they did in Ali, uh, Ali Burbick when they had to go find a cowbell, because, a legit cowbell, because no one actually bought a real bell. <laughs> and they and said, yeah, nobody could hear shit. One, the guy's chasing the cow around, trying to get the bell off of it while the cow was like trying to get away from him. Yeah, and so Oscar Bonavena is beating the hell out of Carl Milderberger. And the only reason I bring this up is obviously because I wrote about it, but yeah. it was part of this tournament. And it was this, that particular leg of it was a fiasco because they took it to Germany. And that was really the main portion of the tournament where people were like, what the fuck is going on here? The rest of it was fine. But in any case, yeah, Jerry Quarry enters into uh, this tournament and they get the bright idea that to, as one of the first legs of this tournament to put Patterson and Quarry back in together in a rematch. Uh, Cause you know, they matched up well the first time knockdowns galore, you know, there was some good uh, spirited fighting. I'm pretty sure both fights are on YouTube. I've seen both. So they had to have been on YouTube. Um, so, you know, it, it makes it sense. Yeah, totally. And it was, and it was almost like a repeat of their first fight. Patterson goes down again. In the second 
Patterson goes down again a little bit afterwards because he always has to suffer at least more than one knockdown. Corey, it comes roaring back again. Corey gets beat up again for a majority of a fight. They go rumbling toe-to-toe at the end, extremely close. So you can kind of flip a coin, but this time Corey gets the decision. And, and Corey's, uh, you know, ability to keep his feet this time might have been yeah. what saved him, or at least on the cards, it did. because It was extremely close, yeah, yeah. It was a razor thin. They just matched up well. I guess they just, their styles I mean, matched it, up their well. style is definitely going to match, man. Patterson was a great boxer, but he wasn't a guy that ran away from anybody. He came from the Customato school of peekaboo. So he would be in your face. Corey, like you already mentioned, you can be a boxer when he wanted to be, especially early on. He's still kind of transitioning to the slugger we'd see him to be. But, like, he still kind of kept a little bit, like, of, you know, his pedigree from being an amateur. Like, he was on the cusp of, you know, going full out. Um, but, yeah, they just they just matched. But it's still, like, all the defensive holes and everything you had you said were still prominent. So they just matched up great right there. But, yeah, Patterson, um, excuse me, Corey was able to move on. He moves to the next round. Uh, he ends up fighting Thad Spencer. Thad Spencer was a tough contender <laughs> in his in the fight before that. Beat the hell out of Ernie Terrell. Got him out of the tournament. Corey scored a very impressive knockout in that one. Looked spectacular. On the other leg, um, Jimmy Ellis was moving up in the ranks as well. Jimmy Ellis now had knocked out the aforementioned Leo Smarin, and then um, he beat Oscar <coughs> Bonfrey, correct? Excuse me. Excuse me. Yeah, and Jimmy Ellis, of course, was, I, I guess, not famous yet quite at this time, but, you know, growing in popularity and had and also was known for being in the same camp, the same yeah, uh, Louisville Ali. camp as Muhammad Ali. Totally. And what's fascinating too, Jimmy Ellis was a former middleweight who got beat up by guys like Ruben Hurricane Carter. No shame in that, but the fact that he was able to move up to heavyweight now was starting to whoop on prominent heavyweights is uh, pretty interesting. But so you see like sort of a collision course starting to happen here. And so eventually after um, Jerry Corey knocks out Thad Spencer and then Jimmy Ellis um, beats, was it Bonavane? Did he beat Bonavane in the semifinals? Yeah, because he knocked out, he knocked out Leonis Martin in the first one. So Bonavina must have been the semis. And then, yeah, all roads led to the finals between Jimmy Ellis and Jerry Corey for the WBA title. Yep. Yeah, Oscar Bonavina uh, once more showed his vulnerability against a bo- like a good boxer puncher. Yeah. Uh, that was just a style that he could not get past. And, you know, if they were above a certain class, he couldn't get past him. And, and uh, Jimmy Ellis was one of those fighters he was not going to get past that way. Um, and yeah, so he wound up losing to Jimmy Ellis and then they, Jimmy Ellis gets in there with Jerry Quarry, but, um, you know, similarly, obviously not the same kind of style as Oscar Bonavena, but similarly, like I'd kind of mentioned before those kind of shortfalls or whatever shortcomings with Jerry Quarry's style, he once again showed a vulnerability against somebody who can move against somebody who can jab against somebody who could kind of circle around him and keep him from planting. And, you know, he, because Jerry Corey very much had that style where he needed to have his feet set to throw. Like he wasn't going to be, it wasn't like he was a bad boxer, but he wasn't going to be Ray Robinsoning you fucking all night. You know, like he was going to have to, yeah, he was going to have to fucking plow forward and get you. And if you could prevent him from doing that, like Jimmy Ellis definitely could. It's not like he had an easy night, but he made it easier by doing that. No question. Not only that, um, a lot of people were kind of surprised by Corey's like reluctance to really go. Like he was, very, you know, he wasn't very aggressive in the fight, and people. Were but there's a story like, behind that. There is a story behind that. So, you know, anyways, Corey ends up losing the split decision. He was very uninspired in the fight, and that raised a lot of doubt in him and a lot of questions. And that, in turn, 
what really changed the style and turned and, changed and, and sorry because especially because that was for the the final that was for the title yeah. and so people were right. like what the fuck why was he so listless yeah. so there is a story behind that and the story goes so first off jerry Corey, i guess years ago suffered a back injury swimming correct i think it was that that was the official the official was story was that so, he yeah he tweaked it in a swimming accident he dove uh, into a pool but like didn't dive correctly and hurt his back totally but the real story or at least according to the family um same thing we talked about family shenanigans between the brothers early on with james and jerry well according to them they got into an argument a drunken argument at some family function or somewhere at a bar and James shoved Jerry. And as he shoved him, he shoved him right into a jukebox or in the edge of it. So Jerry smacked his back and I think cracked a vertebrae in, in the interim too. <laughs> according to, yeah, according to Jimmy, he fractured his vertebrae, which is pretty, that was pretty fucking serious, breaking a backbone. Uh, and they didn't postpone the fight, did they? No, like, and so they, it was all like, they went forward with it. And the same kind of thing, like I said earlier in his like amateur career, when Jack, who was still handling his son's careers at this point, uh, you know, I don't know whether he knew about this, perhaps he did, maybe he didn't, but if he did, I can almost guarantee he would have said, oh, well, you're fighting mm -hmm. and he fought and he lost. And I mean, I, I don't know who knows how truthful that is either. But it definitely would go a ways to explain why Jerry Quarry did not, yeah, did not look very good. And he almost like he was trying to counterpunch and just he just was, you know, Ellis was able to control it and got a, you know, a very uh, convincing decision. And here's the thing, too, man, is that that was probably ends up being and that was easily Quarry's easiest chance, not easiest, but best chance of being a champion at all. Because when you think about who Quarry ended up having to fight for the title and just the competition he had to go with as the turn of the seventies happened, you know, like yeah. that was in 1968, that was in mid 1968. And so then it's like, shit starts to ramp up right in yes, like, right about quickly. 1969, 1970. And so that was exactly like, I, yeah, I didn't even think about it that way, but that's a great point. That was probably his best and last good chance at winning a championship. And so when, if you do agree or think about it that way, then Jimmy fucked up his chance at ever becoming a champion. Yeah, thanks a lot, big bro. So yeah, um, fucking jukebox. The fuck? Well-constructed jukebox. So like we said, man, he, he holds that stigma now because a lot of people are really disappointed in him. I mean, Corey was the favorite in that fight. Like people, he was the favorite in the tournament because he was so popular and the fact that he was to the finals and he looked impressive in getting there. I, you know, Jimmy Ellis was, not, like we said, a very, very solid fighter, but I think Corey, everybody was hoping for a coronation for him. So with the disappointment of that, he, he has something to prove now. And so he turns his focus from the WBA to the other guy who's calling himself champion at this point, Joe Frazier, because like we said, they're separated. Frazier has the um, recognition in various states, states with power, though. He's recognized in New York State, which if you think about it back in the late 60s, early 70s, has probably absolute power over the country. So that holds a lot of credits. Um, Maine, Massachusetts, um, and a few others. Was it Pennsylvania or had they split? I can't remember. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But regardless, yeah, yeah, like New York's the big like, one. Yeah, New York was the big one. And that's how he was always recognized, too. They didn't mention the other states. They always said he was the New York State heavyweight champion. Right, yeah. So when he fights, you know, first off, um, Jerry Corey beats Buster Mathis, who was, a, you know, a contender, flubby guy, but a good boxer, you know, underachiever, whatever you want to call it. But he beats him impressively, all right? 
but that sets him up to fight Joe Frazier, rampaging Joe Frazier in 1969, like just an absolute animal at this point, 68. Yeah, you know what I mean? At his, at his peak, peak, peak of just beating the hell out of people. And this is the point where everyone, you know, you realize Jerry Corey's courage because Corey has something to prove here. He knew, you know, he's holding that stigma. He's feeling bad. And this has been written about that. He said he was really angry about how he performed in the Jimmy Ellis fight and how people treated him afterwards and what was said about him. So he said, you know what? I'm going to go out there and fight Joe Frazier toe-to-toe, which was against everything anyone ever told him. They're like, please don't do that. It's the last thing you can do. But what did Jerry Corey do? He went out there and fought Joe Frazier toe-to-toe. And when that, in that first round is one of the wildest, most awesome, brutal first rounds you can find, man. Like, those two just go at it. And they go at it for the whole fight before Corey gets beaten into a standstill. But my God, it was awesome. You know, I he, Jerry Corey literally looked like a white version of Joe Frazier, just even in terms of look. <laughs> just thick, thick legs, thick arms, thick torso, blocky head. <laughs> blocky head, yep. Just somebody who's like meant to, like just a sturdy looking human being, you know? Totally. And they had a, a fairly similar offensive style, both big on the left hook. The first fight in particular is just a left hook fucking festival for the first few rounds. Um, you know, they're both just pushing, shoving each other, and it's it's a it's a good physical fight. Um, so just to kind of rewind just briefly, just just uh so just kind of give some background, Joe Frazier earlier on maybe about a dozen fights earlier had hit the deck twice against Oscar Bonavena and almost got stopped would have gotten stopped had he hit the deck one more time, um, but did not and got through the fight and not only got through the fight, but started beating Oscar Bonavena up toward the end of the fight, you know, was getting, getting it back. And then, so when he wound up picking up the New York state athletic commission title, uh, it was almost like he felt he had some something to prove. You know, he made a, a string of defenses, mostly against fighters who were kind of like, hey, you know, he won, wins the, fight, uh, the title against Buster Mathis, who you'd mentioned earlier, but whose main attribute when it comes to the show was just he was just much bigger than these these kind of like more normal or average sized guys. A lot of it was flab, but he was still bigger and he was a pretty decent fighter. But, uh, you know, Manuel Ramos, who we've talked about before, not a very big heavyweight and the kind of guy who, you know, you stand in there with Joe Frazier, dude, you're getting chopped down. And he did. Uh, Oscar Bonavena, though, too. Oscar Bonavena comes back and gets pretty much whitewashed by Joe Frazier in their rematch, who Frazier beat him up for most of the night. And so uh, Dave Ziegelwitz, I mean, we won't even go there. Fucking poor Dave oh, Ziegelwitz. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're not going there. Poor guy. We won't, we won't speak ill of the dead, <laughs> but I mean, you know, but any, the point, no, no. I mean, I, because oh. he got murked and that, fucking, yeah, he, he definitely did. Yes. He got murked, but point being, you know, uh, Joe Frazier had in a fairly short span of time though, he had clearly demonstrated that like, that was a fluke. He had toughened up. He had refined his style a bit with the Yank Durham and with, uh, um, uh, Eddie Futch and whooping ass. And this, yeah, this was at a time where he was obviously going like this, you know, and Jerry Corey was too. It wasn't like Jerry Corey was on the decline or anything like that. It's just that, like I said earlier, there were some things that Joe Frazier did that he was better at or had that Jerry Corey did not have. And 
he just started fucking putting the absolute wood to the to fucking Jerry Quarry, bro. Just started whacking him. And I mean, it's it's beautiful to watch, but it's rough too, especially in the context of what we're talking about here. You know, you go back, dude, and Jerry Quarry I mean, started. Frazier go to work, man, is like just, you know. It's, it's beautiful. Yeah, it is. It, it's because it's simple too. You know, it's not even like he's really doing, it's subtle. There's a lot of shit he does too that's better than you I, think. I, I just did the worst left took impression, but you know what I mean? <laughs> with him, when he just comes in with it, just bow, bow. And he leaves Corey there, he just. Yeah. that's that's the the crazy shit that's the crazy shit about joe frazier though dude is a lot of people are like oh you know, he's unskilled all he has is that left hook wait hold on though think about that if all he had was that left hook and he still got that far how good do you gotta fucking be with that left hook to make it land bro and that's the, he knew how to set it up you gotta know how to set it up and he did and this was him in prime form you know what i mean so jerry quarry really did not have much of a chance here and so that, all i was gonna say was with that strategy I mean, you know, credit to him for wanting to like prove his point or whatever it was. But I mean, there's other ways to do it besides going head to head with Joe Frazier. Yep, exactly. And uh, in in the context of what we're talking about here, Jerry Quarry started fighting, started boxing when he was five or six years old in a Golden Gloves tournament. By the time he was like 16, he had over 100 amateur fights. And now people might not even say, ah, oh, that might not even, that's not that crazy. But point being that he'd taken a lot of punches by this time. And then you get in there and kind of with Joe Frazier and take a shellacking. It's not great. It's not great. Probably not great for your brain. Absolutely not. But like you said, man, you know what? Corey, after the fight, even though he was stopped, he was stopped on a bad cut, which become, you know, a common theme throughout his career cuts him and his brother actually um you know he he was he redeemed his credibility though man people were in love with him again that was the 1969 fight of the year for ring magazine and people were just hyped they were like you know what quarry like he really as much as that probably that would take years off of anyone else's career that beating that he took because that was a vicious brutal brutal beating frazier just pounded the shit out of him but to his credit, he came back from that and he still was able to beat other contenders. You know what I mean? And he was still remaining a big name. He was just biding his time before he was able to get, you know, another fight. He did have another hiccup in a very weird fight with George Chavallo, um, who was definitely on the back end himself at that point. But it was like, you know, it was one of those that um, if you want to give a current or more recent example, when Aaron Pryor got knocked out by um, Bobby Joe Young, he goes down, goes to one knee, gets up, goes back yep. down. That's Same good, thing happened yeah, yeah. with this fight with Jerry Quarry. Quarry gets dropped, a legitimate shot, but he goes down to one knee, you know, takes the count for a few minutes, for a few seconds, right? And then gets up and then goes back down again, thinking he's going to be able to beat it, and then gets counted out. And then it's when he does that, he doesn't, he's like shook, he's going fighting stuff like that. And then there's a famous photo of um, the MSG photographer that I have in a book over here, George Napoleon. I forgot his last name. Um, but there's a famous photo that he took of Chavalo with his arms raised you know, freaking out because that was a huge win for him at that, at that at that point in his career. And Corey is, you know, being covered up. And that was a big loss for Corey. That was a setback. Yeah, Shavalo was not a massive puncher. Like, he was a, he was a strong guy, but he was not a massive puncher. Yeah. You know, but like that... You, Corey wasn't expected to lose that fight. No, he was not expected to lose that fight. It was a, you know, feature at Madison Square Garden uh and that was that was actually another thing too was that a theme throughout his career for whatever reason was Corey was he was all about fighting in madison square garden and that he said that there were a handful of times where he took 
opportunities to fight at Madison Square Garden, where in hindsight, he felt he probably should not have fought at that time. Like he wasn't ready. He wasn't in shape. He was a drinker. He and his brother uh, were drinkers and liked to party. And so uh, basically it, it was just at a point where, yeah, like he, he sometimes he said he could not get in shape, but he took fights he should not have because he liked to fight at Madison Square Garden or that he liked these other like historic venues, which is kind of weird. But nonetheless, uh, yeah, that was a kind of an anomaly with George Chavallo weird fight where, like you said, it's knocked down, up, down, and just kind of we've seen it with other fights. I think one that I brought up somewhat recently on another episode when I think you talked about the Aaron Pryor fight was uh, Muhammad Abdullayev when he yes. got knocked, knocked down against Emmanuel Claudi. And then he's like sitting there like counting along with the referee. And then at 10, he's like, whoa, wait, what? Oh shit. I forgot 10. Oh, fuck. (laughs) But it's like. There's always a few instances like that. I remember um, Rafael Varelis when he got knocked (laughs) out by against Mauro Gutierrez. He got dropped, went down to a knee. I think went down, did the same thing. Got up, got all confused, throwing his arms up. No, no, no. Shaking his head. You know, it's, don't it's almost like there's trying to keep the count with them. Look at the referee. Look at the ca- somebody else besides your <laughs> damn corner. You know what I mean? Don't it's, pay it's, attention to them. It's like there's this misfire in their brain where it's like not enough of a misfire to like totally fuck their legs up, but enough to kind of like the th- to make the thinking not be totally yeah, correct. Totally, you know, like whatever it was, that was a big setback for Corey. Yeah, I mean, it it was in it the came, ranking, but enough for his popularity. Of course, he was still going to be popular, but I mean, at the it same time, it came at a bad time. It did. Yeah, it came at a bad time, and it definitely uh, it it made it so that he had to kind of take a big step back on the level of opposition and to be kind of more careful. And they talked about that too. Jack Quarry had talked about that they were worried. Um, you know, he had talked about after a few losses, it was kind of weird because Jack Quarry, for as much of a bastard as he was, you know. It, he showed these the way to describe them. Well, these showed these moments, and most of them were in the wake of his son's losses, where he would almost kind of like be contemplative, like, you know, I shouldn't have done that. Like, you know, we shouldn't have done that. We didn't have time. I knew you weren't ready. I, you know, but almost all of it was like, it was very Catholic shame for sure. Irish Catholic shame would be a very good way to describe it because it was like, it, it wasn't like it was something that he did, like he was really having an introspective moment, but it was like he was shaming his sons, like you weren't ready type of shit. But even so, he would occasionally show, like there were some quotes uh, after like the Shivalo fight where he was talking about basically that he regretted this or shouldn't have done that and blah, blah, blah. But like I said, it happened a handful of times. Point being that they had to dial it back. You know, a, a scrap iron job, Johnson, Mac Foster was probably the biggest, uh, at like well, biggest Corey name was on brought in. Probably was Corey was definitely, I don't think, was con, uh, was brought in to, to be a lamp for Johnson. I mean, not scrap iron, um, Mac Foster, no. Well, I mean, Foster look at, at that point, was undefeated, all of his wins were by exactly, knock. exactly. You know, and, and he already had a couple of old scalps on his head, like Zora Foley, for example. So, you know, this was Corey considering this is, you know, he was thought of um, maybe to be a part of like the old era still like, you know, that little past like the late 60s as they move into the new one. Mac Foster was supposed to be the future. So, yeah, Corey was brought in to lose that. Yeah, Mac Foster had ties to a number of other big heavyweights that he'd either been in camp with, sparred with, yeah. trained with, whatever. And they'd, the you know, a lot- he knocked out Liston in sparring. 
they'd they'd talked about that you know basically yeah like you said he was the future like there was we talked recently about jim rumors and legends and stuff like that and he was kind of one of those guys that was like a gym legend or you know whatever coming into that fight 24 and 0 bunch of knockouts scary looking dude uh you know a, a very hard punching looking guy and yeah dude jerry Corey went into that fight i don't i'd have to look at the odds i'm not gonna lie but he went into that fight i would presume not as a big favorite you know not as the guy that's being brought in likely to win so that was a big, big win that pointed him very quickly upward. Quickly, man, because after that, um, soon afterwards, he was able to get the Ali fight when Ali finally was able to come back. Yeah, and I think that that probably speaks a lot to Ali recognizing that Jerry Corey was still pretty popular and that, you know, he wouldn't have just come back against anybody, you know? No, there were there were rumblings that he was going to fight others. Like in, in the Billy, I keep on bringing up Billy Joyner, but there's an article of his in Ring as always, but... One of the early, one of the later ones from the two thousands when they were like just remembering him, but like he mentioned he was going to be an Ali opponent, and there were like talks about that. But then Ali even said, "Who's Billy Joyner? Like I can't, you know, <laughs> like I'm not going to come back against him." And so, but like you said, Jerry Corey is actually still huge, still a very popular name, and he's coming off of a big win over Mac Foster, including another one after that too. So he's like, you know, totally he's that's. That's a good one. That's a big, that's a, that's a good name for Ali to come back against. And not only that, it's a fight that Ali knew he was probably going to win too and look good against. So that's why he took it. Yeah. And you know, like I, for the exact same reasons I brought up earlier, very little head movement, a guy who's going to be pretty stationary. Ali's not going to have to. The cuts. Yeah. He's it's, it's might not be a long night. Ali's not going to have to run too fast. He might have to time up a little bit, but it shouldn't be physically too much of a chore. A lot of people forget Ali was a good six, three, a good two twenty two twenty five. not a small guy, you know, not super muscled, mm-hmm. but not a small guy. And I think that uh, that's one of the things that in that facing Ali documentary, a couple of the, I don't remember who specifically, but a couple of them had said that they were surprised at how physically strong he was in the clinch and that he was af- that he was actually really good at like, you know, really strong and really good at uh, tying opponents up, which we already know. But regardless, going into that fight, yeah, Ollie probably looked at that and was just licking his chops like, oh man, I'm going to cut this guy up, I'll cut this boy up. And on top of that, there was this extra element. Sorry, because I know you're chomping at the bit. But (laughs) there was this extra element where I actually forgot to bring this up. Uh, Before the Jimmy Ellis fight, man, man, oh, man. They had to go ahead ahead and bring back an old, old trope, baby. One that we all hate. They started calling Jerry Corey the Great White Hope. And I mean, I'm not saying everybody did, and it obviously wasn't used in the same way or in the same, with the exact same kind of tone as it was used in the Jack Johnson era. But nonetheless, uh, it's the kind of thing where if you start using that language, it's obviously a very clear call, callback to, to, to that kind of stuff. And it was a term that was coined mostly by Jack London, the author Jack London, fucking racist author Jack London, who, you know, is... Up to you, Jim. Yeah, somebody who was, I was forced to read in fucking middle school, like several different times. But, um, we all were at some point. <laughs> what's that? I'm sure we all were. 
whatever. I mean, I don't, I remember the books, but I'm not like, yay. I, I just remember reading them. Oh, fuck him, dude. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fuck him. What the fuck? That, fuck Call of the Wild, bro. Fucking White Fang. Get your fucking fang out of here, bro. Right, man, I don't care what he wrote. It's what he said about Jack Johnson. Yeah. Open pledge to Jim Jeffries to save the title for the white race. All right. Yeah. White Fang, you're asked out of here, bro. So fucking the the term white hope was largely pushed by jack london in a racist attempt to fucking blah blah we know a lot of this story but this term was recycled again uh for jerry quarry going into the jimmy ellis fight which pissed yeah. ellis off and ellis was like no you know i'm not, I'm not having this shit and I, I think that that was a good motivator for ellis too like you said was like you know he he uh had been through quite a bit at, already by this point but nonetheless he was he was ready to kick some ass and he yeah. did um but also that i think was a little bit of a motivator for ali too in that like you know he saw jerry quarry as one of the white contenders that he was gonna have to you know he's gonna have to whoop this guy's ass you know he's gonna have to learn he's gonna have to learn a lesson he's gonna have to show a lesson here and i mean perhaps i'm reaching with that but i think that that was a little bit of a motivating factor for ali no totally and there was you know Tensions were still really high. Ali still hadn't turned the leap yet of being like Mr. Popular. Um, Vietnam War obviously was still going on. There was still like a lot of division in the country in terms of, I agree with Ali. I don't, I mean, by the time he was allowed to come back to boxing, I think the tide had turned and people like, you know, being on his side, but there was still obviously a lot of, you know, people wondering, and eh, 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 like that, right? And if you go by that movie also, the one that he started as himself, the greatest in the 70s. Mm-hmm you'll see that there was like, when he was getting ready for the fight, there was like racist fans coming up to him saying, oh yeah, I hope you get killed and blah, 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 all this other shit. So they were still calling him clay on the cover of the ring. They were, they were, even though they were the last, even though they wanted to keep on recognizing him as champion. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. It's, I don't, it was a real weird dichotomy about that because generally speaking, they treated him very well over like in comparison, you know, relatively speaking, but calling him clay on the cover was weird. Yeah, they always did that. But anyways, um, the fight was kind of anticlimactic when you think about it because it ended so quickly because Corey's eyes just, you know, split open. I mean, Ali was going to beat him regardless, but this was Ali's first fight back. Corey wasn't really as used up yet as they would be when they had a rematch years later. And when the fight ended, Corey seemed like he was warming up a little bit. He was starting to, you know, rumble. And he was getting in there. He was starting to, you know, do a little bit, but his eye was, you know, a ghastly wound. And obviously he didn't want the fight to end, but there's nothing you really can do about that. Yeah. Ali Express was on its way. But I mean, you know, the thing is, Corey wasn't like beat up in the fight. He wasn't really knocked around and he didn't suffer too much damage. He just, his eye split open. So this being what it is, it's only 1970. That wasn't going to be that much of a, of a hindrance to him. Right. You know I mean? Yep. No, Plus, totally. Was, yeah. Like yeah, that. and well, and it's like motherfuckers get cut all the time. Like, what are you gonna do? Yeah, you know, yeah, you know, and, and he wasn't like getting completely outclassed, like he was, you know, coming on a little bit when it got happened. So whatever, he's still popular and he had a bunch of string of wings after wings, <laughs> a bunch of string of wins after that as well. Yeah, yeah. He's strung he's strung together what six, seven wins or something like that. Uh Jack Bodell, uh British fighter, went over to to London to to beat Jack Bodell, who was not a great fighter by any means, but who was a popular British fighter over there. He beat Bugner, didn't he? I'm sorry? He beat Bugner, I think. I think so, yeah. And he had sparred with Muhammad Ali a whole bunch of times, somewhat famously. And so in any case, uh, you know, he 
Eduardo Corletti, another dude who is, I want to say, South American uh, from Italian family or something like that. In any case, strung together a bunch of wins and then got another chance at Muhammad Ali, who I think, again, still recognized that Jerry Corey was popular. And also on top of that, one of the absolute greatest taglines for a fight card ever. Soul oh. Brothers versus Corey Brothers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Depending on how you look at it, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, best, like bad best, you know, not. Totally, totally. Not, I, don't, I don't hate it either, man. I mean, the poster's cool and everything, but like it's, it is what it is. But that was, yeah, that was a sad card when you think about it, because we're, we're going to talk about Mike in a moment. And um, what ends up happening to him beforehand, I guess Jerry said, affected him so badly that he couldn't do anything without Lee that night. And Jerry, if you watch that fight too, Jerry does look like he's kind of, you know, used up in it. Ali. Yeah, he doesn't look like the same type of fighter just two years later. Absolutely. You can already see this visible difference. And Ali doesn't have any issues whatsoever before he stops him. Like, it was kind of just a beatdown. Yeah, I mean, he just... Uh, he didn't look like somebody who was confident that night. And maybe that maybe his brother, you know, what I happened mean, to I'm his... I mean, bro, if that was... If I had a little brother I just saw get, get decapitated in front of me like that, I'm not sure if I'd be up to fight right afterwards. You know, yeah, that that's like a really, really, really brutal knockout. It's real one of bad. The brutal knockouts in boxing history, especially in the more modern era that we think, you know, the fight's uh, 40 years old now, but it still holds up today, 40 years later, as one of the most vicious, brutal thing. Not 40 years, excuse me, um, 50. 50. Yeah, 50. Yeah, excuse me. I, I got my <laughs> thinking 72, 82, but um, yeah, 50 years later, it still holds up as one of the most brutal knockouts in we can ever find like super rough dude super rough yeah I, I would i would buy that excuse you know um we were talking about like the venues and stuff like that and boxing and madison square garden still being so massive you know muhammad ali and joe frazier's fought at madison square garden huge uh las, las vegas had not yet really entered the equation in that way las vegas really yeah. only rose to prominence in the late 50s early 60s with floyd patterson floyd patterson was one of the ones who along you know with the mob uh help helped push las vegas as a fight hub but then muhammad ali also helped kind of you know secure that uh and that fight card was in at the convention center in las vegas um and in any case so that was like considered a somewhat earlier las vegas fight card their rematch but he couldn't do anything with him winds up getting tko'd in seven rounds but he, you know, he still had a couple of hurrahs after that. Not too many, but he still had a couple of hurrahs, at least enough to kind of get his name in the books, you know? Totally. And the ones we're gonna, the ones you mentioned would be one by the name of Ron Lyle, who was an undefeated contender, kind of in the mold of Mac Foster, except without all the knockouts like that. And another one, who, you know, hoping after he got beat up by Ali, you're going to add the scalp of Jerry Corey to his back. And Corey was able to turn back the clock that night. You know, very impressive performance for Corey. What was even more impressive, though, was the fight that would be a few fights, two fights, like three fights later, Ernie Shavers. You know, um, Ernie Shavers at this point was a seasoned veteran, had over 40 fights, had a couple of losses as well, but just a bad, bad man. He had, or I believe he had knocked out Jimmy Ellis at this point in one round and, you know, just looked brutal upon his, uppercut. Brutal uppercut. I watched it the other day, bro, right? His and whole fro just. <laughs> it he looks like a fish out of water the way he's just flopping on the canvas. Yeah. And he had hurt Shavers before that. Caught him with a right hand, jumped in like a maniac, trying to finish him. And then their arms get crisscrossed like that in a weird, like, sword thing. Yeah. And just, 
Hits yeah, it was up. like, yeah. yeah, Shaver's fucking, yeah, dirty box disaster and just fucking was like, bloop, gave him the old uppercut. Jab. Shaver's like, their left arms cut, like kind of got cut, and Shaver's just hit him with the uppercut. Yeah. So Shaver's is feeling himself. I mean, there's a whole weird story behind that one, too, where Shaver's was supposed to play Corey. Um, Archie Moore allows Jeff Merritt to spar Shaver's before the fight. Jeff Merritt shatters Shaver's jaw. Don King throws an absolute fit, fires Archie Moore um loses his mind gets pissed off um gil clancy is pissed off about it because he's Corey's manager and he was like you don't have a guy he was like if you're gonna spar jeff mary you need to do it for money what the fuck are you doing like no it was just a fiasco but anyways the fight ends up happening and Corey puts on a spectacular performance man he went right head to head with shavers which no one ever would want to do took a few solid shots himself but quickly you know he was able to dent shavers chin which was never really that strong to begin with and scored a spectacular first-round stoppage. Like, that was a big, big win for Corey. And unfortunately, that was probably his last big hurrah of his career. Yeah, I mean, like, he was in there, Lorenzo Zanone. You know, he got well, that win. You know, he got, like, he got knocked out by Frazier soon after that, and weird, but... like, Joe Lewis, of all people, was refereeing, and the Ken Norton and the Ken Norton beat him up. So after Ken Norton stops him in 75, you think that's the end of it. Corey retires, and rightfully so, because he was used up, man. Norton beat the daylights out of him from one pillow to post to the other. And like you said, that fight was at Madison Square Garden as well. But, you know, it's a respectable career. You lose in 75, the fights, you know, you've had a career since the early 60s. Like, Corey's been around the block, man, a really, really good fighter and extremely popular. He had nothing to be ashamed of. And at that point, he really shouldn't have come back. But he got the itch. You know why? Because in 1977, he comes back to fight a guy um, – a European fighter by the name of Lorenzo Zanon. Zanon was one of those fighters I think we mentioned a couple of times. Came um, the uh, European fighters that came over in the late 70s. Him, Alfio, uh, Spaghetti Rigetti, um, Alfredo Evangelista, Lucien Rodriguez, guys like that. All that future Larry Holmes victims besides Rigetti. And um, Zanon was one of those dudes, he was a pesky fighter, had no chin, but he had a good jab and he was awkward. And Corey was, you know, interviewed before the fight. And he was like, you know, I saw, um, he was like, why are you coming back? You know, you have a really good thing as an announcer, yada, yada, yada. And he was like, oh, you know, I, um, he was like, I watched Dwayne Bobbick against Ken Norton. And I saw that the fight lasted 87 seconds and Bob would make X amount of money. Well, I wanted some of that money. You know, he was like, then I saw that Ali went to 15 rounds with Alfredo Evangelista. And I'm like, you know what, if I can get in shape, I can do that too. Like, he was like, I think I still have one more thing to prove. And then they were like, it's all about money, too. He was like, yeah, it's totally about money. I see how much you guys are making. I want a piece of that pie. He was like, I want that, you know. But he sounds articulate. He sounds a little bit slower. You can tell his voice is slurred a little bit. He's more, you know, it's he's more relaxed, if that makes sense, right? And he probably shouldn't be in, you totally shouldn't be in the ring. Like, he has no business, but he's still popular. His last fight was only two years ago. And, you know, Don King is promoting it. So, of course, he's going to exploit it. So, anyways, the fight happens. That fight happens on the undercard of, um, the vacant title fight between Ken Norton and um, Jimmy Young. So Corey looks like shit in this fight, bro. I mean, I'm sure you've seen it. It's bad. He can't do anything. Zanone, who's an annoying guy to fight anyways, is just pesking around and jabbing him and jabbing him, doing whatever the hell he wants with him. He's just landing combinations at will. Corey's not even trying to block a punch. He looks like Rocky, Rocky Balboa uh, when he fired Antonio Tarka. Just can't do anything. He's just getting smacked around. It's really pathetic to see. Finally, in round eight or not, whatever, seven, eight, whenever it was, he caught up, he catches up to him. And he lands just one of those sloppy hooks or something, and Zanone just crumbled like a tree. Somehow, Corey miraculously won the fight, right? 
but he looks like shit. He knows he looks bad and he immediately retires. He was like, I don't, he was disgusted with himself and rightfully so. You know what I mean? It was not a good performance. He's lucky he won that. But um, he had all these other plans. He wanted to fight Holmes. He wanted to fight this guy, that guy, yada, yada, you know, Ali again, but all of that fell through. So at this point, again, you think, okay, this is going to be the end of it. Corey's done. You know, um, hopefully he can just preserve his brain and go off and be a commentator for the rest of, you know, for his career. But wasn't meant to be. You know, <clears throat> a lot of stuff happened right around this time. Big shit in boxing. So I'll try to make it concise as much as I can. But starting in, so Corey retired 1977 after the Lorenzo Zanon fight. And he had been retired. And in 1982, uh, as many people know, unfortunately, Ray Mancini fought uh, Kim Dooku, fight that ended very tragically. Um, and a number of the circumstances around the fight after Kim Dooku's death had officials and fans and writers and pundits and et cetera calling for God knows what in boxing. More of this, less of that. I mean, who knows? You know what I mean? But the point is that there was this big rush to do something. And one of the things that had been done right around this time was that I think I'm almost positive it was the WBC uh, started making for world title fights pre-fight. They made mandatory pre-fight EEGs, uh, electroencephalograms, you know, brainwave scans. Mm -hmm. um, and so while it was kind of a Band-Aid and didn't really do anything, it later on led to greater testing, which is good. But during this time it was it was a it was a big window dressing type of fucking jerk off bullshit it didn't mean anything a bunch of these entities were saying oh we're going to do this we're going to do that uh one of the entities that said they were going to conduct this investigation was sports illustrated sports illustrated got uh well i can't remember the third fighter off the top of my head but they got tex cobb randall tex cobb and jerry quarry and a third fighter and they basically conducted a whole series of neurological tests on these fighters to see what was going on. And then they also did brain scans, MRIs to see what their brains looked like. Did that match the results, et cetera? Okay. Um, and so basically what they had found out was that uh, Jerry Quarry specifically, the test that they conducted, he did okay, like he passed them, but that when they actually looked at his brain scan, that it it had shown a, a serious amount of atrophying. It had shriveled, which we now know is an early sign of CTE, yeah. like a, a very clear sign of CTE now. The problem oh. is that uh, we, well, let me reword that slightly. You don't know whether or not you can have CT until they literally crack open your brain and look at it. So you got to be dead. Like Chris Benoit. Precisely. Yeah. So let me reword that and say that that brain atrophying and those kinds of changes that they're seeing, we now are able to recognize is something is far more sinister than they did at the time. At the mm -hmm. time, they were like, well, we don't know what to make of it. You know, he's passing the test. And that was about it. But but that's the problem is that the even the fucking neurologist who conducted the tests was just like was saying a bunch of shit like, yeah, you don't really see brain damage in boxers. You only see them in the bruising fighters and in the brawlers, which is like oh, fucking 
I'm not going to use that word bad. It's um, stupid. Doesn't make any sense. And and that's a neurologist. That's yeah. the dude conducting the tests. And so already you're in a place right now in the, in 1983. That year is going to be key here in just a moment. Where in 1983, it's already recognized that Jerry Quarry is in a bad shape. And the fact that because Muhammad Ali, right around the Burbick fight, people were like, they got to send him to the Mayo Clinic. They did. And Muhammad Ali started going, why are you singling me out? Why are you picking on me? Why don't you go test Jerry Quarry? He specifically said, why don't you go test Jerry Quarry? So they did. So they put him, Sports Illustrated put him in this study. So the problem was that despite the fact that you and I and most people now recognize the study is like, Jesus Christ, at the time it was encouraging Jerry Quarry to keep fighting because he passed the tests. This was in this was in the spring of 1983. Jerry Quarry came back in August. It's it's incredible. Kind of like when Ali initially passed his test for Larry Holmes. and Everyone's like, well, he probably shouldn't be fighting, but, you know, he passed the test or whatever. And that just encourages them, yeah. It's, and he had two fights in '83. It's the same thing that Joe Messi was trying to argue for years back, and thank goodness they did not let him. You know, he was like, "I'm passing the test," and they were like, "You got a brain bleed, bro." You know, like so. I mean, like it's it's the same type of. But luckily, they did not let Joe Messi go through and keep fighting. You know, with that, at least I don't think maybe think he did once. Killed, I don't know. I think that's but, what actually killed him. Not to go veer off course too much, but that's what killed Kid Akeem too. I Kid believe Akeem, so. Yeah, Kid Akeem Anafadis. Um, I can't pronounce it. Anifa Woshe. Yes, Anifa Woshe. Um, junior Bantamweight, very, very talented fighter, suffered a ma- uh, bad brain injury against Robert Kiroga, another sad fate. Yep. And um, <clears throat> caught, got caught up in some stuff after his, you know, after his career ended. You know, he got deported back to, uh, was it Nigeria? I think so. Yeah, yeah, got deported back. Not positive, deported, but yeah. Got deported back and... People found out he was trying to fight again because, I mean, he was going to check up on him, was going to regulate that, right? And they said he had a sparring session, went to go take a shower, complained of a headache, died. Yep. And so, and they and they would it was widely suspected that it was a previous brain. Well, that was the previous brain yeah. bleed. I mean, how could Clearly, it not? Yeah, be? I mean, he had no business trying to ever. Yeah, fight how could again. it not be? Yeah. You know what I mean? And so back to Jerry Quarry here. The point is that you know all of this sounded, I think, at the time like well-meaning, like oh, you know, Mancini Kim. Oh, this is bad. But regardless, the, it actually had the opposite effect, and it encouraged Jerry Quarry to get back in. That was the spring of 1983. He fought in August. He fought in August, a few months later. So um, it was clear, though, that he was going to have a tough time getting licensed, at least in the, nobody's going to be televising this shit. I mean, you know, it was embarrassing. So he got in with fighters who, you know, themselves barely even should have been in a boxing ring, which was pretty much the entire point, you know? Yeah, I'm absolute palookas, man. And the backstories in those fights, too, are just absolute fiascos. They're just, it's just sad, all right? Corey, yeah, I mean, you brought up Aaron Pryor earlier, but they're very similar stories to very, the end of very, his career. Yeah. You know, like Corey at this point, he'd been through two divorces. I think like he had no money to his name, lost all of it, various things, suffered from boot, um, alcohol addiction, cocaine addiction. Um, his career as an announcer was long gone. Like everything was just kind of falling apart. All he knew again was fighting. That's what was his back end, you know? And he still was a popular name because he was popular throughout his life. And I mean, boxing's one of those sports that no matter how broken down, beat up, screwed up, no business being in the ring you are, 
there's some cl- uh, there's some place with some shady ass commission and some fozy you know some phony doctor will give you the flimsiest exam and go yeah yeah sure whatever to get you in there because they can take money out of you you know what i mean and that's and what pretty was much and make lies about it too oh you win this fight and you do this one hey man you back in there we're gonna put you in with a contender eventually oh you know before you know it you're gonna be on tv fighting larry holmes oh okay okay yeah, like constantly dangling that carrot and always. and on top of that there was his dad almost yes. the entire time that was yeah he never left his side oh yeah always encouraging Ma because mike Corey was still going on at this point too his career had just ended the year before that so you move on from there, and then those, those were just embarrassing fiascos. But, I mean, they, they're, whatever, they go off, right? And then Corey looks like it retires again. So he's retired. Um, there's rumbling of a fight that was supposed to happen in 1990, which doesn't because Corey got into a fist fight with the promoter before the fight happened and got cut. The promoter caught him with a hook or something and some argument about, what, about the fight. I forgot what the argument was, but they got into an argument. The promoter punched Corey in the eye. Corey gets cut. Um, Corey's manager, uh, trainer got beat up by the promoter's brothers. And it was a whole fiasco. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's absolute, you know, it's insane. And even at this point in, in late eighties, it was already like agreed upon yeah. in the boxing community that Jerry Corey was in bad shape. Everybody already knew it. <laughs> you know, like this was not a secret. So it's, uh, it's but, really un- it's really unfortunate that it even still went on after this. But it still did, and you know why? Because of George Foreman. Air, George Foreman. It's what George Foreman did. Like what Mike Tyson kind of did when he made you know when he had that uh, exhibition with um, Roy Jones. Yeah. And now everybody's trying to get in with exhibitions. Everybody was trying, which to is jump. great. Hey, dude, you know what? If they can do it more safely or whatever. I'm, and they're going to do it anyway. Exactly. Then this is, I mean, these are different things, but kind of, I'm saying the same way how everyone started jumping out of the woodwork. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yes, yes. But this was different. These were all guys wanting to make professional fight comebacks because they see George doing it, and now they think they can do it too, and they want to have legitimate fights and try to fight for the title. Corey in 1992 decided, "Hey, I think I can come back." You know what I mean? Um, you know, our homie of- Ron Kramer is on the case. Yes. So. Jerry Corey in, in, in October of 1992, mind you, I'm eight years old at this point, all right? Jerry Corey has no business fighting while I'm alive, all right? I was born in 1984. His career should have been done a decade before that. So just to put things in perspective, all right? I was in second, I was in second or third grade when this fight took place. And, um, and you're older than me, so, you know. And like, anyways, Corey, Corey ends up going to, to Colorado, Aurora, Colorado, right? That's where... To, the to Holiday a, Inn Trade Center. Yes. To fight a, uh, fight a guy by the name of Ron Kramer, you know, undistinguished professional fighter who wouldn't do much after this anyways. But whatever. A lot of, you know, and the thing is, this is a place, there's no state commission over there because no one in their right mind. He got that Uriah Grant win. Okay. You yeah. know, he, no, I mean, like, you know, he got that Uriah Grant over Hearns win. He yeah, got yeah, that as the ends of Duran. Exactly. So this is even more sad than when you think about it. But because Corey had no business. Way By more. this point, he's already suffering from, you know, from the early onset of brain damage and other stuff. He slowed down to a pulp. He has no business being in there. But there's a bunch of janky-ass promoters who want to promise him, hey, man, you win this one. We know people that are in the, uh, in the camp of George Foreman. Uh, we can put this in for you. We'll get the fight for you. He thought he was really going to fight Foreman. They're making a bunch of BS for him, telling him the shit like, oh, yeah, we have documentary deals in for you, comeback things, movie plans, all this shit. He gets all these ideas in his head. He's going to make this big comeback. 
he doesn't look like he's in bad shape. He always kept himself in shape, even out of retirement. And he figures, yeah, yeah, a couple of wins over there. I'm still popular. I'm going to get myself a big George Foreman fight. And, you know, this fight's on YouTube, right? For years, it was always just kind of talked about. One of those fights, people weren't sure if it was recorded or not. And it finally surfaced, you know, probably the last eight years. It's so sad, dude. And yeah, it's totally handheld camera stuff, but you can see what's happening. And it is sad, man. It is not beyond sad. Corey, the fight goes, what was it, six rounds? It went six rounds, and Corey just got his ass kicked, man. Like maybe the first minute of the fight, dare I say he looked okay. Like he landed a left hook and he still knew how to kind of throw one, but like he had no balance. He had no, he just couldn't move. He's slow as hell. No reflexes, no anything. All he could do is still take a punch and throw a wild left hook once every, like, once, once a minute. And this dude, Cranmer, beat the crap out of him, man. It's really bad. You see him just landing uppercuts and punches at will. Corey's head is like a swivel, just getting knocked around. It's And the fight goes six rounds. Corey loses an easy decision, right? And afterwards, God damn it. Um, the man, because this bothers me, bro. It really does to think about this happening. You know what I mean? Corey has broken teeth. His teeth were knocked out. Both of his eyes were all damaged and screwed up. His nose was broken. His face was just blown. Like, he just got the shit kicked out of him. Like, someone mugged him in the street, yeah, all right? Yeah, exactly. He was at the ATM you know and somebody just stole on him. He got $1,050 for that. That's how much he got to get his brain kicked in even worse. And that really exasperated everything else that went with him. Because after this, he was gone. Like, his, his life just went... You know, yeah. and he didn't need that. And I really hate when pe- bullshit people in this sport get around and be able to do bullshit like that because look what happened to him, man. That was it's fucked up. That was squeezing blood from a stone for no reason. There was nothing left of him, and they just threw him in there, and he just got this. Literally, the. the and short... I'm not blaming him on Cranmer. No, He's he just, he know, went in and he did what he was supposed he to do. What he had to do what he was supposed to do. Nothing on him. You know what I mean? Anyone else would have probably done the same thing, but. It's just pathetic how they had used Corey like that. It it is, dude. Shortly after that fight, he wound up being incapacitated to the point where he needed twenty four hour care from his older brother James, who took care of him from that point on till almost his death. Um, and it was it got to the point where uh, Jerry Corey was unable to form long-term memories uh there was one story about how they moved houses because he lived with his brother and they moved Mm -hmm. and it took him months and months and months to adjust to the new environment because he kept going outside for things that used to be outside at the old house um you know i've uh he was a smoker also so he was like, uh, you know, I think that he continued drinking. I mean, it was bad, dude. It was real bad. Uh, I know he made public appearances and that he was at the Hall of Fame a handful of times. But... I know that they showed video of him at the at the West Coast Hall of Fame when he was getting inducted. And that's really, it was sad to watch that too. Like, I mean, you know, you can, with people with dementia, like you <laughs> can tell he's like kind of enjoying being around crowds. Yeah. But like, yeah, he didn't really know what he was, he was at. And the fact that his brother was having him sign an autograph to someone really bugged me out because he's telling him, Corey, write a, write a circle, put a line right there. That's a cue. There you go. Make a you. And I'm like, dude, first off, who asked him for an autograph, right? Because I'd love to kick his ass for that. Second, 
what even good is that autograph you know what i'm saying like this is here here's my scribbled fucking jerry ink i mean you know yeah just i don't it, it's sad to watch the whole thing is just sad but it really it did raise awareness to his condition which it i'm did. not sure a lot of people were aware how bad off he was like there were rumblings i'm yeah. sure you know a few people knew but this really he became like a known awareness. sad case in, totally. in the world in the boxing circles yeah he was like one of the first ones where people took notice and they're like holy shit you know because and, you see him too and he was only around 50 when this happened bro and you put that in perspective, Bernard Hawkins was having his last professional fight around 50, 51 years old. You know what I mean? And and Corey was just, you know, like, he couldn't remember. They asked him, oh, you know, do you know what day it is? No. Do you know what month it is? Who cares? And he would sit there and he would drink a Coke because he likes drinking Coca-Cola, you know. But then at one moment, you see him throw a left hook because he still knew how to do that. Like, they asked him, and it's, it's I don't know. Yeah, it was, uh, it's pretty sad, dude. Uh, he obviously had slid so quickly. Um, yeah. One of the uh, one of the other good things that came of it, uh, we've seen a number of organizations, Ring Eight, Ring Ten. Uh, mm -hmm. I know there's been a couple other rings. I don't mean to be like patronizing here. I just don't know all of them. But regardless, um, what's that? There are a lot of them. There, there are, and the main aim for them, as far as I can tell, is to take care of fighters who have, like, the families of fighters who have fallen or fighters who are retired and need help um and that was one thing that james quarry jimmy quarry his older brother did yeah. was uh they helped set up a foundation jimmy quarry foundation that uh basically was for fighters who had gotten messed up you know that that needed it needed help and needed care after after their career um but unfortunately there was not there was not a happy ending you know there there, there never really is with any of this stuff and unfortunately, in 1999, Jimmy Quarry uh, basically, be I'm sorry, yeah, Jerry Quarry became incapacitated to the point where he, his body failed him and he had a heart attack and died. Yeah. Sad, tragic. Man. At 50, what, 52, right? you said, right? 52 or something? Just 53 around there. Something like that. Yeah. yeah just a young guy. It's, it's, it's tragic, man. Very, very tragic. And, you know, but he still remember fondly today. He's remember as a cautionary tale, but he still remember fondly. But you know, to move on now. Um, yeah, how could it get worse from here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. how, how could it get, get worse? worse? Well, get ready, guys. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. Now, maybe take a breather, but this is about to yeah. go downhill a little bit. Because uh, he wasn't the only brother to suffer the same fate. <laughs> yeah, and and unfortunately, you know, Jack Quarry, the dad, he's the the mainstay in all of this. You know, he, I think that. That was one thing that kind of, I think, saved Jerry was that Jerry was successful and Jerry was good. And that I think that that kind of helped him steer clear of Jack Quarry's wrath a little bit. Um, you know, like he had just enough, enough success. Totally. Mike Quarry did not, you know, he'd not the same kind of success. And he was, I think he was far more in Jack Quarry's path as far as, well, Abuse. Mike Corey was, you know, he obviously like looked up to Jerry, adored him, and everything like that. Wanted to be like him, and they were close in age. But I mean, you know, Jerry was obviously an older brother. But like they, you know, enough that for the fact that Mike was definitely old enough to learn the family business very quickly, and not only that, he was, you know, close enough in age where he can become Jerry's main sparring partner. 
And in the world of Jack Quarry, you don't spar. You're not just there to learn experience. Every fight's a fight for your life. So these kids were bashing their brains in already at a very young age. All right. Jerry Quarry started boxing around five, six years old. So did Mike. And right away, you know, the backyard brawls, because everything had to be settled with a fight in the Quarry household, um, became norm. And soon enough, you know, Mike Quarry basically followed his brother into the pro ranks as well. Yeah, he started his amateur career far later. So mm-hmm. Jerry Quarry started his amateur career at five. <laughs> but Mike Quarry started his at 16 or 17, which is obviously a big, big difference. But even so, I think that that also illustrates, um, you know, the the difference between how Mike ended up and how Jerry ended up. That's basically, you know, we'll get into it more here in a moment, but it's like Jerry's career was, you know, this mm-hmm. and Mike Quarry's career was like he took the same shit, but in this, it, yeah, you know, it was like far said, more they were gaps in Jerry's career, like even in the 70s, after like near the Norton fight, and then after the Norton fight, a couple of years later, Zanone, then he waited till the 80s, and then the, the Cranmer fight almost nine years later. And like you said, man, uh, Mike Quarry didn't really take breaks like that later on in his career, you know, he might have like a six or eight month break after taking a bad beating or something, but there was not really any extended lulls in his career. At those points where he did have like six or eight months off, they were described as, you know, a long layoff. Yes, <laughs> and, yeah. and so I guess I also, we should probably credit to where it's due. Um, gosh, what freaking forum is this again? I can't even remember. Saturday boxing. Sato, yeah, Sato boxing, Sato, Sato, whatever. Um, so Bill Paxton, not the actor who passed away a few years ago, game over, man, not that guy, but no, Bill Paxton, the guy who wrote the fearless Harry Greb, um, a number of years ago, he's he's actually has a profile on Cyber Boxing Zone, extremely underrated website, by the way, if you're looking for old school boxing shit. But regardless, um that dude it sounded like he was writing like he was putting together like a long form article or something for some publication on mike quarry and so he had a shitload of information in this thread about mike quarry on sato boxing uh it's a really long thread took a takes a while to read and it obviously took him a long time to put together it's kind of an eyesore there's a shitload of just random quotes that are like they're not even really quotes so like i said it's kind of tough to read but it's very, uh, very illuminating, very enlightening, and really sad. Really illustrates a lot of the sad shit that Mike Quarry had to go through as a fighter. Like I said, it's kind of like Jerry Quarry and Mike Quarry went through about the same amount of punishment. It's just that Mike Quarry's career was far more condensed. Um, and so Mike Quarry, after turning pro, he really put together a decent string for an early pro, for a young pro. Uh, you know, not not a very old guy he put together gosh i'd I'd have to count him up and i didn't count him up but i would guess something it's like 28 no or something like that here let's just go to bob foster's thingy so i don't have to count him up but um i mean he had good names on his record too at that point you got to remember the um the light heavyweight division from the late 60s going in 19 in the early 70s bob foster obviously ruled the roost and no one was going to knock him off of his perch and the contenders that he was dealing with were good fighters, very, very good fighters. I want to put them, I'd say they're a step below from what we saw Saad Muhammad, you know, Dwight Muhammad Kawi, Spinks era, stuff like that, clearly, but still very, very tough guys. And after a few wins, Corey was already starting to get into the mix with some of those guys, guys like Andy Kendall, 
guys like Jimmy the Cat Dupree, who's extremely underrated, um, you know, and so on. Yeah, he, so I looked and just to count him up, so I'm not, you know, pulling no, bullshit out of my ass. He was, he was a lot of, a lot of, there was a lot of wins he had. Yeah, he, he was 35 and 0. Yeah. And I mean, granted, a lot of these 35 victories were not, you know, very good fighters. Like the, you know, you generally you're not getting to 35 and 0 as like a contender slash prospect with a whole mm-hmm. bunch of really good wins. It's just the nature of the beast. But another thing about Mike Corey's style was that uh, Jerry Corey was a bruiser. He had a very good left hook, not a massive left hook, like not really a one-shot type of guy, but he could hurt you. He could definitely hurt you. Mike Corey, eh, not so much. <laughs> he probably wasn't really going to hurt you. He could hit just sharp enough so that it could deter you. And he was a boxer, too. He was quick on his feet. On Mike yeah, Corey. he was definitely more of a stylist. Yeah. He could hit just sharp enough to, to like to keep you honest, but you, you, know, you, you weren't going to be afraid of his punching power. And that wound up being a big problem later on. If he had punching power, it's tough to say because he might have had might not have had the same style. And but hey, dude, if he had punching power, at least against Bob Foster, all due respect to Bob, didn't have the greatest chin. And if you could catch him, you could maybe maybe get him out. I mean, especially if you're Joe Frazier. But regardless, yeah, you know, uh, Mike Quarry, he put together a lot of uh, fairly good wins, unbeaten. He's the NABF champion. Yeah, and back when that actually did kind of mean something. And so, uh, you know, going in against Bob Foster, though, you know, Bob Foster, just an absolute murderous puncher, murderous, ridiculous, the kind of guy where like when he starts throwing, like when he gets pissed yes, and throws hard, it's scary. One of the I brought this up on a recent uh, episode. I don't remember which or why, but the Vincent Vicente Rondon knockout. Yeah. That's Bob yeah. Foster pissed off. Yeah. Vicente Rondon had talked a bunch of shit. They felt like Bob Foster felt cheated. He felt like they fucked with him leading into this fight. And he was like, I'm going to kill this guy. And he almost did. When you watch him swing in that fight, it's like frightening. A yes. guy that's just a string bean looking wowza. Anyway, so that's unfortunately what Mike Corey got the full brunt of. That's and Corey wasn't doing bad in the fight, man. Like, you know, Foster was biding his time, but Foster again wasn't a guy that was free to put himself. He was a stalker, you know, kind of in that. If, if you see someone like Hearns was quicker than him, but like oh, a yeah. similar style with the hand down, you know, the left hand down drawn, trying to lead you in, jabbing from the hip, jabbing, jabbing over there, just trying to, you know, bide his time so he can gauge you, so he can land his big right hand and left hook, but he's trying to box you at the same time. And Foster was such a tall-ass, light heavyweight, so lanky, it was hard to get in on him. And every one, one of his punches hurt. And not even like his knockout punches. I'm talking if he jabbed you in the face, that shit was going to hurt you badly. So, anyways, um, Foster, um, Corey wasn't looking bad. Like, he was getting a little too ambitious, though, in the fight, You would, yeah, I would say. You know, like, he landed a couple of combinations off Foster. Sticking around just a little too long. And he did the alley shuffle a couple of times. Like he was <laughs> around, he was dropping his hands and starting to goof off with them, you know. And Foster, I want to say he was looking old, but he was, you know, was like he was, he was a little like, bit. He was like sixty-five fight, fights in or something like that. I mean, or maybe fifty-five or whatever. But he, you know, like he was a little bit slower too at that point too. And if you watch him, man, he looked a little like the his trunks looked like they were like all raggedy and old. He, just, <laughs> yeah. he looked like from a different era. You know what I mean? But yeah, like, those were like the replacement trunks, and he'd lost yeah. some pounds or something something but anyways Corey got a little too ambitious and then in round four as he tried to you know he felt like he was landing a little bit and he can get a little bit more um rumble a little bit with foster which is the all-time dumbest move 
that one sequence that everybody's ever that everyone that's watched highlight knockouts have seen. He throws like a right hand or something, and he comes back with the left hook. Pow! And it is the hardest, most ridiculous hook you'll ever see in your life because Corey just splat out, like just gone, you know? Eyes rolled in the back of his head, collapses unconscious, come clean unconscious. There's no movement, anything. And Bob, as Bob Foster says it, he looked down, Corey's eyes were, you know, he saw them first and they rolled in the back of his head and he saw pure white, like he was gone. Foster, who was always a very stoic guy, didn't say much and seemed kind of indifferent if he knocked you out or not, um, was clearly shook. And he said so. He went to his trainer, his manager, and told him, he was like, listen, I think I killed this kid. Oh my God, I'm freaked out. His manager, who was an extremely cold, I forgot his name off the top of my head, but a former fighter himself from a different era and clearly didn't give a shit, said, business is business and shrugged his shoulders. Like, that's, yeah. Um, if you look at cold-blooded. Both, <laughs> cold-blooded. Yeah, both the video and the photo make it look like Bob's pissed. Mm-hmm. Almost like he's stepping over him like, yeah, motherfucker. Which is like some real cold-ass shit yeah. considering the knockout you just saw. Like, that's some, like, to step over somebody like that and do it. But, yeah, he said later on that he wasn't, he wasn't going like, yeah, bitch. He was like, are you okay? Like, know, he, was he was like, holy there. fuck. And, and no. It's crazy because, like, you see the commotion in the ring. And Corey's head is like when people are getting into the ring to try to aid him, you see Corey's head kind of slightly bounce off the Yeah, because the ring's so fucking yeah. spongy. Yeah, yeah. it's like, boom, 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 boom. Well, yeah, he looks like he's dead. You would think it was, I mean, it's, I don't know how I'd react if I was ringside for that. I'd probably throw up. Like, I don't know. It was, it was bad. It was one of those knockouts. And unfortunately, a young Corey, who was very young when that happened, was com- his career never really recovered from that. It, he still it really didn't. Awesome, but I mean, that's the type of knockout that just it, it really, really didn't and you could but you could totally understand why because i mean like dude, well no, that's a anyway. knockout that can legit give you brain damage like yeah Boston, dude that would kill some people that was bad like they we're gonna spend all our time to, like describing this knockout his head snapped off the canvas man that was it was that bad it was yeah. honestly that bad and it, yeah it's one of those things where it's like heads like bounces off the canvas type of shit just like holy shit And yeah, dude, his career, it's just, you could understand how a career could not be the same after that. He comes back, you know, to his credit and I guess to his dad's credit too, uh, you know, takes six months off and comes back, but can't manage more than a draw against a dude who's not even 500. And this winds up being just kind of the theme throughout his career, unfortunately, dude. It's not just like, yeah, dude, you, you get knocked out by Bob Foster. So what? It's okay. You know, I mean, it's not okay, but it's like, there's no shame in that. That doesn't ruin your career. Apart from the physical uh, effects, it doesn't ruin your career. It's, you got knocked out. Everybody gets knocked out by Bob Foster. It's okay. But it was that after that, it was uh, inconsistency. He couldn't, the wins that he was getting were generally against fighters who weren't very good. And then it was like they would put him in against somebody who was totally supposed to kick their ass, and then he would like get a draw. Yeah. And then he'd go on and he'd get knocked out in his next fight. And then he'd string together a couple more, you know, that kind of stuff. And it was just up and down. And it was it became clear very, very quickly that after that knockout to Bob Foster, he wasn't even going to be competitive with the upper end of the division at all. Huh. He, you know, he made rumblings kind of close. He fought, he ends up fighting Mike Rosman, a future light heavyweight champion. And ends up scoring a, a big decision win over him, probably an upset at the time. 
And, but then again, like you said, man, you can't stay consistent after he loses him. He wins a bunch of, you know, went fights against various guys, man, various records, whatever it is, but not like any like top contenders or like future contenders or anything. And by the time he ends up stepping up again, man, he loses the various dudes. Like you look, he loses Chris Finnegan, he loses a rematch to Andy Kendall, a guy he beat earlier. He uh, loses to Pierre Fourier, who was an extremely tough guy from South Africa. And the only person that was able to take Foster to distance as champion. And, um, but that was, that was the theme. Like you said, he'd have a string of wins and then he'd end up losing it. Like, you know, he'd have a, a step up fight against somebody like a rising contender or whatever, and then end up losing it. What really ended up getting bad for him though, was that like by the mid seventies around 1975, when Jerry Corey was really starting to, you know, should have retired himself. That's when the wheels started to come off for him. You know, he loses the Yaki Lopez, which is obviously no shame in that, but like he loses the Lopez he loses to another tough fighter by the name of Pedro Soto, who became an undersized heavyweight soon after. And, um, you know, and then he fights, um, he starts losing the other guys too from there. Like he ends up fighting Mike Rossman, loses a rematch to him. And like, he's still a commendable name. He still like has, you know, the win. But the thing with him is that the way, like you said, the whole condensed thing, after he would lose, he would pull together such a quick string of wins against various guys that, he would easily be able to go right back on television because he was still a name. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. We could put him on ABC. We'll put him against so-and-so. Oh, you know, we'll bring him to the garden. That's still a good name against Rossman for a third fight. Oh, because there was always the promise. Hey, you beat this guy, you get this big fight, you win that fight. Then you're going to fight for the title or you're going to fight a big money fight against yada, yada, or this one or that one. And Corey was just like, I'm, you know, I'm popular. I'm the one that has to hold the mantle of the family now because Jerry had retired at this point. And so when you think about it too, this is the dad factor. His dad, now Jack has all of his attention on Mike. He can just devote everything there and put the same in thing. No quitting a quarry, no quitting a quarry. Take this fight, take that fight, blah, 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 you know. And the wheels started coming off, bro, badly. The And one of the things that really, I mean, I don't want to say it like rattles me, but just bothers me about Mike Quarry's case, about his life, about his career is that it's it's so microcosmic, so representative yeah. of so many other cases in boxing. Because it's like, dude, you have, I mean, I know we're skipping around a slight bit here, but it's just like, you know, so Mike Quarry can't stay consistent with his wins. But despite the fact that he can't keep winning, and it's like he's win some, lose some, win some, lose some. And on top of that, it was like he would get stopped too. It wasn't like he was like just losing decisions, but losing close decisions and like, fighting his ass off or something like that it was he was totally getting stopped here cut there you know flayed open on his jerry he was losing his boyish face man you could see the scar tissue everywhere the clothes was getting gnarled up yeah you could you can see that he's a very fresh-faced you know he's got the 1970s rat stash the mustache and but but he's like a fresh-faced young dude he's a pretty good looking guy and then a couple years later he's fucked up man he's got scar tissue all over and he even he even notes notes it like pre-fight he's talking about all the scar tissue he has and his face looks messed up etc and like uh but the whole point is that like it was obvious by this time what the score was he could not stay competitive. Uh, he could not stay competitive against the upper edge of the division, even the middle parts portion of the division. And then on top of that, 70s. yeah, dude, it, it was clear that he could. He didn't have the punching power to salvage him to salvage these fights that he was out of. 
you know, like Jerry Quarry, he did. He he did wind up having the punching power to get, win some of these fights. Mike did not. And so he would be losing these fights, win some, lose some. And nonetheless, the promoters, promoters all over the U.S. were still just like, yeah, we'll take you. We'll put you on TV. We'll do this. We'll do that. And it, and it was, that's the thing is that it kind of exposed, the case of Mike Quarry exposed so much of like the nasty underbelly of boxing, you know? So to give you a prime example, like saying, yeah, we'll still use you, still use you. He goes through this series of fights with Rossman, all right? Um, one of them is interesting because it was a scheduled as an 11 round fight, just so there couldn't be any, um, any draws or any like even rounds or whatever. So he gets stopped in that fight. That was the one that really like, you know, the wheels fell off of it. And Corey was just like, damn it. You know, I thought that was gonna be his last big chance to, um, to really push himself to like, you know, a top contendership, another championship. But we're talking now that we're getting into 1978. All right. Corey is already a thing of the past. He even looks out of place here. He said his face is mishappened. He's just, you know, from a bygone era, the early seventies, him and his brother, they have no business still fighting there, but He's still young too, man. I don't even know if he's like even 30 at this point. He's still, you know, in his late 20s, but he's had such a long career and can not only that, add in all the crazy sparring sessions and exhibitions him and his, him and Jerry put together where they beat the holy hell out of each other for countless rounds and years. And you're talking about a dude on very, very dulled legs, you know, you're like, he shouldn't be fighting. So after he loses the Rossman again, um, there was talk of him fighting Michael Spinks. Um, future light heavyweight champion, Olympic gold medalist, you know, you know the whole deal. And Aram was going to make that fight for television. He was, you know, Bob Aram, like she has mentioned, he was all excited about it. But before that, they were going to take a tune-up fight against a guy by the name of Pete McIntyre. Pete McIntyre probably is best known as being on the highlight reel of the Matthew Saad Muhammad fight, where Muhammad hits him with that right hand, McIntyre throws his a punch and goes down and Muhammad drop, puts his hands up, right? McIntyre didn't have a great record at all. You know what I mean? He was kind of a journeyman, but he could really punch. He was a strong guy and he had, and he knew how to fight a little bit. All right. And when he got brought in to fight Corey, he only had a six and eight record, but I've never seen the fight, but by all accounts, he beats the shit out of Corey. Like it's bad. And Corey wasn't ready for it. He just gets brutalized, beat up McIntyre, knocks him, knocks him around, ends up knocking him out. Like it was a bad knockout. And afterwards, instead of just taking the, taking clearly what was there and saying you know what we're losing this type of guy now we need to retire no jack Corey says we were set up this guy mcintyre was a beast we didn't know how big he was and how strong he was this was a whole setup and blah blah blah, blah. we didn't need this if we knew what was going to happen we would have never taken the fight not only that bob aram still says guess what it's okay just have him rest up a little bit i can still have him fight michael spinks don't worry about it so you have the initial ickiness of his career in the first place the nastiness of his father handling it, and then the straight-up fucking disgusting promoter willing to still put him in against the dude who at light heavyweight, Michael Spinks, was a fucking killer, bro. And on top of that, this was not not even, I think, two years of him after him winning gold in the 19th. No, 19... Spinks was only around eight or nine, nine pro bouts in at this Yeah, point. so this wasn't even two years of him winning a gold in the 1976 Olympics. He would have fucking slayed him, absolutely broken him in half. And they knew that. That's the whole point. You know, that's why he was going to be put him in there anyway. But like, but that's what I mean is that like it really exposed the underbelly or like the nasty part of what was going on. And I don't Look mean to say never came off. 
yeah, dude, it would have been super ugly and shit like that still happens now. I don't mean to suggest it doesn't, but it w- it could have gone under the radar far more easily then than it could now. And How I mean, we even would have known that he got knocked out by McIntyre like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, bad. Yeah. But I mean, that's but that's so representative of the things that were going on in his career. Like we said, it it became much earlier than that. It became obvious that he wasn't going to he wasn't going to be a contender. You know, he wasn't in that position. Not yet anymore, they, especially. No, he was done. Yeah. And But I mean, it does raise other questions, though. It kind of raises other, I guess, philosophical questions about like, all right, well, I've, I've said this before, but like the world needs ditch diggers, right? Just like boxing needs journeymen. It needs people who are going to lose. If somebody's going to win, somebody's got to lose. Yeah. And so at what point is like it okay? You know, at what, at what point you're a 37-year-old fighter who's 10 and 49 you've gotten knocked out 31 times at at, at what point you know i'm just making up numbers that this is not my quarry but at what point is it enough at what point have you fulfilled your role at what point have you done your fucking service to this sport he never you know what i'm saying like at what at what point is it enough and we already know that for jack quarry there was no point that it was that it was enough but it it does it does make me think those things you know it makes me think like this the sport is filled with these fighters it's filled with fighters who can't get a fucking win and so i mean at what point is it okay for them to just say you know what i think we're good and it's there's no easy answer you're right man it's really well way to put it think about this too it's like from what from that link that we the from that thread that you were talking about the whole thing about Corey's career uh, one thing that really stood out to me was after the Rossman fight, I think his last one, when he got stopped by Rossman, Jerry Corey was in the locker room with him and there was reporters in there and Jerry Corey like begged him. He was like, you need to retire. Tell me you're going to retire. And Mike Corey was like, I just want to go out with a win. Let me go out with a win and I'll retire. And Jerry was like, no, I don't want to see you take this anymore. Like you're I'm literally crying ringside, seeing you get your ass kicked, but you got to stop, please. For God's sake, Mike, just end it. And they said that they both started crying. And Mike was like, okay, Jerry, for you, I'll do it. You know, for you, bro, I'll, I'll stop fighting. And initially it looked like it might happen because like we said, man, he was retired for at least eight months or so. And then he started getting the itch again. And you know why? Because his dad was crowing in his ear. Oh, you need to come back. You can still do it. You're still young, blah, blah, blah. And then his dad was quoted for his comeback. Oh, no, no, no. Mike still has a lot of fight left in him. I mean, he's not retired yet. Not at all. There's no quit in a quarry. That same stupid saying that's been over and over and over. And that's when he started coming back. And that's when the ass kickings really started taking place because his dad was always in his ear telling him, you can still get this fight. Hey, I got another fight for you here. Hey, I can take this. I can do that because his dad was his manager. You know what I mean? He knew nothing else. He was, he was, that's, that's another layer of it. That's so nasty is that his dad was out there wheeling and dealing for him. Like he was some sort of like filthy manager, you know, like the, the epitome of some fucking scum sucking manager, that's like, you know, totally exploiting. And it was his fucking father. And he's out there going all over to like, you and I both know it might not be as clear to people who are less apt to fucking reading about the history shit all the time. And it's not as common now, but in other eras, those other circuits, like the Southern circuit, the fucking Midwestern circuit, you know what I mean? We, we joke about this stuff often, Gray Johnson, we joke about this shit all the time, 
but in other eras like these were legitimate circuits these these were like there were a lot of promoters in south texas there were a lot of promoters in alabama you know like it, that sounds like some crazy shit now you'd be like there's no fucking boxing promoters in alabama back then there were point being uh jack quarry Mike Quarry and Jack Quarry's father was wheeling and dealing among all of these nasty fucking promoters who were like on the carnival circuits and shit like that, trying to nuzzle them up. And you read this fucking thread and it's like, it becomes obvious. Look, it's a very detailed thread. It takes a long time to get through, but you start realizing that bro, he's fighting for like 900 bucks, 1200 bucks. And then on top of that, a common theme starts to be that he starts fighting for like, you know, low money, but they're letting him drink as much as he can low oh. money, but they're paying for his hotel and his meals and his drinks, you know, like in that type of shit until it starts finally evolving into like, he's less worried about his boxing career and he starts traveling around doing exhibitions. Yeah. It has, same thing happens in wrestling too, to a degree, you know? It's, yeah, exactly. It was like the exact same thing, except for without the wrestling. Exactly. It's, 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 it's really, really bad, man. And you can, again, combine that and all these different promoters trying to drag him in for various things. Cause he was doing this exhibitions with his brother from earlier on full combat karate which i wasn't aware of oh my god i forgot about that part yes yeah. please hit me he with was it doing like early mma i guess you know <laughs> i mean whatever that promoted by don elbaum of all people so you can imagine what kind of fiasco shit that was that involved in and and and, um, and with all i'm sorry but elbaum's you know in here singing its praises and talking about mike quarry and how good he is and stuff like that and i know don elbaum's a very like beloved promoter in like the boxing circles but yeah. dude, that's some pretty gross stuff bro I mean, this is the same guy that when he promoted Sugar Ray's last fight against Joey Archer, one of them, he went up to Robinson and presented him a pair of gloves, really old pair of gloves he found and said, Ray, these are your original pair of gloves from your first pro fight. Don't ask me how I found them, yada, yada, yada. Ray gets them all excited, starts tearing up, gets really emotional. The reporters ask, hey, Ray, put them on, man. Let's, you know, take a photo, uh, you know, for the cameras. Ray starts to put them on. Elbon goes, no, 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 don't do it. Finds out there are two left gloves. Yeah, that's pretty. Yeah. <laughs> like I said, and, and, well, these, the guy, are, and these are the. Also, and also, to top it off, the cherry on top of the cake, he's the guy that got Don King. He gave him his introduction to boxing. He's the one that opened the door. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> and like like I said, he's and these are the kinds of people who do wind up beloved in boxing circles. So it's he, like, he you opened know. opened up the door for Don King. You know what I mean? He's the one that helped him with that hmm. cherry event back in the early 70s that <laughs> started everything. So, yeah. Thank you, Don. Perfect. Perfect, Mr. Elbaum. Thanks so much. And the karate. But no, for real, though, you know, as far as, you know, all, all of the shaming aside, I need some of that karate footage. I need that footage, bro. I'm very curious how what was going on with that. But, uh, you know, there was nothing in that thread that mentioned what was the results of that. Just Elbaum saying he wanted him for his shows because he knew Corey was back in business. But, you know, after that, man, like you said, at the turn of the 80s, Corey... Like, he was just a relic of the past, man. He looked nothing like he did. He's looked like an old, shack, shambled, sad look of his former self. Clearly had no business fighting, but still getting opportunities here and there. And his last known, one, uh, I guess, known fight, I would say, against a recognizable name, is a guy that you posted up on the uh, Boxing History account a few times. Um, very tough fighter by the name of Bunny Johnson. And the winner of that fight apparently was going to get a big money fight with Tony Mundine. See, we're always going there. There's always something to plan ahead if you can win this one. Yeah. Corey was very excited because he was like, yeah, I'm going to go to Australia, you know, a different location. And apparently 
there was an 18 year old kid who's not named and I'm not sure who it is. And I'm very curious who could have been, but it was an 18 year old kid who was the promoter of this event. They did name him, but I just, I didn't look it up and I, I was meaning to, but I I couldn't, I couldn't remember. I couldn't, I just didn't have time to, to look it up, but yeah, dude, that was something that caught my eye when I was reading the thread where apparently uh, Mike Quarry's talking about how the Bunny Johnson fight was put together in Australia by some kid who promoted the fight. He was 18 years old and put everything together and he's singing his praises and telling him, you know, saying he did a good job putting it together. And I'm like, what? Some 18 year old kid, dude, like that's fucking crazy. But Bunny Johnson, uh, you know, he's, he was a good fighter. Uh, uh, but more of a, f- a good fighter who was like a good regional fighter. Uh, yeah. He was one of, if not the first, I'm not positive if he's, he's the first and I'd have to double check, but one of the first black uh, British heavyweight champions, believe it or not. And that sounds crazy because that wasn't that long ago, but it's, it is, it's true. And nonetheless, um, he was a good fighter, but again, more of a kind of like a regional level fighter, not somebody who broke through into world contendership really, um and somebody who was obviously very limited and on their you know best days or whatever bunny johnson mike quarry probably a pretty decently matched fight but not on this day <laughs> definitely not on this day it's and johnson had said before the fight that he was in tremendous shape because he knew what this what this fight represented he was a little bit older than quarry but much more preserved and definitely didn't have the mileage that quarry did and Corey had no business again fighting in the 80s, let alone that he did fighting back in 1975. You know what I mean? So it, it was just it was just a massacre, man. Johnson just beat the crap out of him and just, you know, beat him up, did as he pleased. Corey was just a glor by all accounts, um, just a glorified heavy bag. You know what I mean? Johnson kind of brutalized him. And um after he stops him, you know, um Mike Corey said again, this is it, this is the end. No mundane fight, no nothing. I have nowhere else to go. But according to Box Rec, he actually did. He came back a year later and still had one more fight after that. I don't know any. I don't know anything about it. I don't really care to know anything about it. But like, yeah, yeah. I I don't really know too much about it either. It was just obviously a very in that thread either. No, it it the thread is I think specifically aimed. So like I said, it, uh, you were kind of had walked up uh, and and walked to the other room, but it was this thread that sounded like Bill Paxton, this author, was trying to put something together for an article or a long form piece or something about Mike Quarry, and obviously the main thread or whatever was that Jack Quarry had messed up his his ambitions had meshed has had messed his sons up or his drive to toughen them up had messed them up basically um and so that was what a lot of this information comes from but I didn't see anything about that last last fight against a dude named Bluefurt Spencer don't know him um and in any case I don't even know uh, what Crystal City is where is that what's that I don't even know where Crystal City is. Was that Florida? Uh, Crystal City. I I would guess Florida. Maybe fucking California or some shit. I don't even know. About to look right now. Okay, apparently it's in Virginia. Okay. Apparently it's in Virginia. <laughs> but it well, in any case, you know, there's uh, a up commission over there back then. Yeah, it probably wasn't big, but he had very quickly deteriorated too, along with his brother. 
I don't know that they were ever, you know, going out together. I never heard stories of that personally because it was always hearing about Jerry and not Mike. Um, but so Jerry died of an of uh, a heart attack in 1999, and then it was shortly after that, uh, Jimmy, the guy, the brother who was taking care of Jerry, died in 2002. I don't know what of or what their circumstances were, but I know that he was also a drinker and a smoker. And I, and then in 2006, 2006, Mike Quarry died at only 55 years old. And it was in, I gosh, I just looked it up. What was it? 20, 2010. Is that what I said? When Jack Quarry died? You said James, uh, Jack died. Oh yeah. Around then. Yeah. Yeah. And so he was the last, he outlived all of these fighting children, except for Bobby, who we didn't really get into, who was just kind of his own entity out there in the wind <laughs> compared to the others. But, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, just, man. um, and you know, what's sad is that Mike Corey ended up suffering from the same fate that Jerry did. He, he really did. You know, at first, um his wife was the one that was mentioning he was like suffering you know his 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 um his moods were changing his attitude he was getting very aggressive a lot um things were happening he was picking fights at bars and like you know all kinds of things and then they just noted a gradual change and i think he noticed it too like he was saying like you know something's wrong with me i can't like he could because he couldn't remember things so you tell him something couldn't remember he was he wasn't able to hold down jobs after a while because of it like things got really bad and eventually um he started taking the same route as Jerry, where he started needing care. He would go wandering off, go wandering into the streets. Um, you know, if you lived in his neighborhood, there was a good chance you might walk into Mike Quarry, who would just give you a random quote, say something like, life is live backwards and move forward or something like that. You know, uh, I forgot what the exact quote was actually. Hold on, let me look at it. Cause it was pretty, pretty interesting. Um, live forward, learn backwards. That's what he would say life is lived forward and learned backwards and then he would just kind of stumble off and you would just kind of look at him stupid like what the hell just happened if he didn't call the cops to you know help him and um it, it was tragic it, re it really really was because it's the same thing he just suffered from the same brain uh ct and the other issues and if you read the, all those quotes that we were talking about that were referencing from that um from the article that bill paxton wrote um it's it gets worse and worse because you can tell that he probably shouldn't, you know, and he, there's a, there's a, like, get, gather, what I gather from it is that there's a thing in the back of his mind telling him he shouldn't be doing this, but it's almost like his dad pushing him on. And you can hear the way he talks, all I need is one more fight. If I win this, I can do this, I can do that. It's almost like his dad's voicing that for him. You know what I mean? Like, that's not really him. And, and, and it almost makes me kind of like skeptical of when Jerry Quarry said, you know, I'm coming back for the money. Yeah, Like maybe he really did need money. I'm not questioning that, but I question that that was the only motivation. You know, I, I his dad was probably in his ear telling him, Jerry, look what you can do with this and that, blah, blah, blah. you know? It's, yeah. 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 I, I don't think that was the only motivation. You know, I think that there was definitely a well, lot. Well, the first things he did mention too, was that he said that he watched, you know, Norton uh, against Bobic. And I'm pretty sure I was watching Bobic getting an obliterated. He's like, I'm better than that dude. You know what I mean? He's a top contender. I could whip him. Well, and you know what, though, dude, Dwayne and Rodney Bobick, that's another, you know, that's yet another kind of uh, yeah. instance of families. I don't know that much about their family life, so don't get me wrong there, but I'm talking about the exploitation factor, about constantly getting a fighter pushing a fighter out there, despite the fact that, like, maybe you shouldn't type of oh, thing, totally, you know? Totally, man. It's, they had a huge family, too. There's a, there, there is a, um, I have a magazine out to search for it somewhere. 
where they go, there's a whole family portrait of the entire Bobbitt clan. There's so many, there's so many brothers. I don't know, understand how they can live in that house with no heat and all the other stuff that they talked about living in Bolus, Minnesota. But yeah, that definitely bred some toughens. But I mean, like you see them and then you see the old, um, the mother in the middle or the grandmother, whoever it was. And they said, Mama Rose was the toughest of them all. <laughs> that's always the case it's always some some lady that could kick the shit out of everybody because you need to you got a family you like just that. see a bunch of just big burly <laughs> redhead pale dudes all standing around in like you know the uh those suits that have the ruffles the ruffle suits you know what I mean? <laughs> perfect yes. yeah but that's it was tragic man to go back to that just to, to sum it up like like you said bobby quarry was the third brother he was born years later than both of them. And in that KO magazine article, actually, there's a photo of Jerry and, and Jerry and Mike holding up Bobby, who's like a couldn't have been more than five years old or something, but he's holding up trunks and he's wearing gloves himself. And he's on their shoulders while they're holding him up, while both Jerry and Mike probably just got done training. So he was fell into the business. Like you said, he was a journeyman. Um, his only claim to fame is that he fought Tommy Morrison, but he too also suffered from brain damage. Yeah, and I mean, it kind of raises questions that they, whether or not they had some sort of like genetic predisposition yeah. toward, you know, just not having the right brain structure or something. I don't know, but I'm not sure how he how he is today, but I know he's still around. So, yeah, yeah, I don't know too much about it either. But, you know, and I, I opened up the show talking briefly about it, about the fact that this kind of stuff is even talked about today. But look, dude, I don't want to get too much on a high horse. I will say this, and the reason why I think this is relevant is that with both Mike Quarry and Jerry Quarry, something that we saw with, well, not we, but you could see with both of them at, at the tail ends of their careers, and something that's even hinted that in, in that thread yeah. um, is depression. Yes. Depression is one of the hallmarks yeah. of what they call, you know, dementia pugilistica pugilistic dementia punch drunk fucked up whatever you want to call it um but the head trauma the chronic head trauma that fighters football players sometimes baseball players even soccer players and shit often endure yeah. you know when you get brain damage we now know that one of the hallmarks of that is depression listlessness you know uh seeming like you're out of it stuff like that. And that's something that both of these guys described a lot. And like I said, I don't want to get too much of a high, high horse about it, but that's something that we probably should be paying a little bit closer attention to. And then when these fighters are bringing up mental health and stuff like that, like, I know it's like really fun to just start poking at them and being like, there's a bitch and you're this and this, but like, you know, we probably should be paying a little closer attention to that and being a little bit more you know, maybe sensitive is the wrong word. Cause you say sensitive and people are like, but a little bit more acutely aware of that especially after um you know certain people i'm not that i've worked naming uh decided to tweet some nonsense today about what's going on you know what i mean i'm not here to judge anything look i'm i have no problem saying i suffer yeah i'm talking about the wider yeah, yeah. Zeitgeist. I, mean, like, I have no problem saying i suffer from mental health so i can say this right now man that shit ain't nothing to joke about and if any fighter whether it's broner who was easy to pick on i get it or ryan garcia who was also easy to pick on wants to say that they have issues going on or anything like that. I'm not going to say anything except that I just give them support and that they can get the help they need. And that's what everybody right. should. It doesn't make you their best friend or their biggest fan. You're not... and just, just, yeah. just 
beat you know i mean you're not the biggest supporter now yeah. you're just being a human fucking compassionate well, don't human being don't be an idiot and be like oh man i'm gonna question this or i need proof of that like, who the fuck are you to ask that you know well and on top of that the the idea that like this is some shit that was just invented two years ago exactly. or that like you know i'm just glad it's getting the attention that it needs yeah now. Yeah, maybe if this had gotten more attention back in the day, somebody like a Billy Papke wouldn't have killed his wife and then killed himself. Or Randy Turpin wouldn't have gone off the deep or, end. You know? Yeah, or tried to kill his daughter, then killed himself. Or Kid McCoy yes. wouldn't have like gone on a rampage shooting people and then 15 years later killed himself. You know, like I, Ricky Womack. We just yeah, talked Ricky about Ricky Womack. Womack. Yes. <laughs> There's you a whole page on BoxRec about, about fighters who killed themselves. There's a whole page it, on it. It's not good. It's not good. And so that that also is something not to joke about. But the point is that, you know, applying this to this quarry situation. Also, I like to always say when we talk about the true crime stuff that we're not here, like, you know, fist pumping at bad shit. We're here discussing it. Also, hopefully bringing it up in an intelligent way that moves that conversation forward. But either way, yeah, the quarry family, heavy shit, dude. Very eventful. Man, they, you know what they made? I'm still, the thing is they're both Family is just remembered generally today. You know, Jerry Quarry is still remembered as fondly as he was back in the day, and credit to them for that. If anything, you know, I mean, that that legacies will always live on and be like well preserved in boxing. Very well said. Very very well said. Yeah, they're very well remembered in the boxing community overall. So whether or not they make it into the Hall of Fame should be irrelevant. I don't know if like, you know you don't need to have that high horse for them because honestly, Jerry Quarry will go down as one of the most popular fighters ever, and that's that's more than enough, I think. They make it into the Knuckles and Gloves Hall of Fame. I'll tell you that much. Hell yeah, man. You know what I mean? Definitely. Definitely. But, hey, dude, you know, I... Thank God for all the different things that we had. The, the, the book that, you know, Carlos Acevedo's book that he wrote, Sword and Blood, because he has an incredible article about Mike Corey in it. Um, the stuff that you were able to reference from your book about Bonnie Vena, obviously, in the tumultuous times of the 60s. And, you know, man, and the article that we were able to use, because a lot of that was very helpful to, for all of us to put this together today. So Totally, yeah. Yeah, no, and I know that you did your you yeah. did your studying up. I did my studying. I appreciate it, dude. It's a lot of fun. Good stuff, yeah. Well, everybody, we appreciate you listening in. We very much appreciate it. If you listened in, by the way, on the podcast apps, go ahead and give us a subscribe. Give us a reply, rating, comment, all those things. Very much appreciate it. If you watched via YouTube, also subscribe. Please leave a comment, nice reply all those things again appreciated and also as far as social media goes knuckles and gloves podcast is on both facebook and instagram it's also on twitter though where we are individually it's usually where you're going to find us eris is on twitter as punch zone eris me patrick connor i'm on there as patrick m connor check us out there and eris we'll talk soon bro have a good one everyone it's out everybody Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.